Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. What's up, everybody? I am Drew. This is episode 161. How you doing? <laughs> uh, you had me on the edge of my seat there. I thought you were going to end that with a intro to what we were reading. But uh, yeah, uh, I wasn't expecting the uh, the handoff quite so quickly. I'm doing yeah, quite I well. Yeah, like, I like screwing around sometimes, <laughs> man. Got to keep you on your toes. <laughs> No, no, that's how I prefer it. I, I want this to be a real experience where we're far too often really, you know, confined by scripts and things that we can try to control when the universe is just filled with all kinds of chaos. The universe is entropy. Existence is entropy. Nothing can be controlled. You're trying to contain a tornado in a jar. It's a futile effort. Yeah, it just can't be done. So I figure yeah. you might as well ride in the eye of the storm, baby. Exactly. We need to embrace it. We just need to embrace the chaos. Uh, you know, there's no point in, you know, creating a shelter to live in the wilderness, in the woods, on the occasion that society should fall. We should be part of the mob, just rampaging and looting and, you know, causing mayhem wherever we go. Yeah, you go ahead and do that. And then, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll be right behind you, man. <laughs> so today's episode, today we are doing another manga menagerie did you say manga <laughs> i did <laughs> i know how you like to correct me on that so i just thought i'd give you something <laughs> to to do uh so that you could feel like you were participating in this conversation uh Thanks, you man. know i like to you know feed you a couple of juicy tidbits to see if you'll you'll take the bite oh yeah <laughs> you know you you set them up i'll <laughs> knock them down yeah we back to back mm-hmm. yeah so <laughs> Yeah, it's another manga menagerie, manga menagerie, and uh, yeah, and what we're doing today is pretty apt because it was the topic of the comic that we're covering is actually something that follows in our read-through from last year, which was Gundam The Origin, and the manga that we're reading today is a fictionalized or semi-fictionalized uh, dramatization of the events surrounding the creation of the hit epic series Gundam. Um, or is it Gundam? <laughs> Gundam. <laughs> Gundam. I believe, I believe okay. the proper pronunciation is Gundam. Okay. <laughs> but I will admit that as a kid growing up in America in the 90s who didn't have much access to anime, well, actually, at that point, Gundam hadn't really arrived in America officially yet. So I would continually, as a kid, just call it Gundam. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I still feel like that's harder. my inclination. It, it, it's still my inclination to say it that way, if only because, well, I don't know. That's just how I read, read, read it. But I will also say that there was always something about its pronunciation that made me flinch a little bit i guess it's it's like you were saying because uh, it does sound harder so there's that yeah as a kid i would yeah. always say gundam yeah yeah and then once once more anime started flowing our way i think i eventually you caught on because that's how the, the way that's how all the characters in the show pronounced it you know gundam or gundamu or whatever and you know if, if you're really trying to be a weeb but i'm not a weeb man so i'm just gonna pronounce it the way it's pronounced 
in Japanese, but with my English accent. That's good. That's good. So you're not going to go around saying Tomino-sama or uh, Tomino-sensei. <laughs> oh, I generally don't go around calling anybody sensei. <laughs> I mean, I guess if I met him in person, I would think about it, but it would still feel weird and insincere. It would feel pretty weird and yeah. definitely insincere, uh, if only because, you know, like on the one hand, you know, it went in Rome, do as the Romans. Uh, so I, I kind of get that to some degree. But there are people who are just way too excited about doing it. And I'm not down with that either. And it's just, you just kind of want to slap some sense into them. It's just like, come on, man, get it together. Exactly, exactly. I know I know exactly what you mean, Albert Kuhn. <laughs> but yes, anyways, today's uh, manga is The Men Who Created Gundam. Gundam. Uh, you mind <laughs> letting... <laughs> now that I've brought it up, I'm self-conscious of it, so I'm, I'm constantly going to be questioning myself as to whether I'm pronouncing it right and like... <laughs> re-repeating it multiple times just to see if I can get myself to hear it the right way. But yeah. anyways. <laughs> as though we didn't say the word Gundam enough over the last year as you read through the origin. Well, but you know how it is. Sometimes if you say something enough times, it begins to just lose all meaning. Huh. It just becomes a sound. You've never had that happen? That's true. That's true. You can just get lost in the vocalization of something. Yeah. I think the same thing happens if you stare at a word for a really long time and just keep pronouncing it in your in your mind. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah. I know what you mean. It just becomes sound. There's a hypnotic aspect to it that just kind of takes you away from reality and drags you into the swirling depths of entropy <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah well so anyways do you mind uh, letting our good listeners know what exactly who exactly worked on this book and some of the creative credits okay we are reading the men who created gundam which is by hiraki owada it was originally published in japan from 2009 to 2011 in America. It's published by Denpa in English. It came out uh, last year in 2022, and it's translated by Jason Moses and lettered by Brandon Bovia. So as Albert said, The Men Who Created Gundam is a semi-fictional and comedic recounting of the historical events around the creation of Mobile Suit Gundam, the anime from 1979, and the impact that the show had in creating a franchise and affecting anime and plastic model kits and, and all of that. So, yeah, uh, I guess that's all I really have in terms of a brief summary or synopsis of the book. It's more of a, a gag manga that centers around uh, Yoshiki Tomino, the director and chief principal creator behind Gundam. 
the other thing that I'll mention again is that last year, if you haven't been listening to us too much, we did do a year-long read-through of Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, which is a manga by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, who worked on the original show and is also a character in this comic because he was the character designer and the chief animation director on First Gundam. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of the connection there. After going through that manga series, uh, and for me personally as a pretty decent Gundam fan, when I heard that this book was coming to an English translation, I was pretty interested in checking it out. Yeah, I guess because we finished reading The Origin last year, it felt like this could be sort of a fitting epilogue or postscript to that read-through. And if you click on our link tree, uh, you can find a playlist of all 12 of those episodes. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah, I wasn't uh, aware of this manga at all. This was something that wasn't on my radar. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not the same caliber of Gundam fan that you are. I, I don't even know if I'd really consider myself a Gundam fan. I just read, uh, you know, the origin with you that last year. And I do watch some watch, Gundam. I've watched some Gundam. I've watched, uh, uh, the, the iron blooded orphans. So, you know, I'm not an, an absolute novice to their, uh, mythology or anything, but, I don't think I follow them too religiously either, where I keep with the news, or I might even say I, 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 I've shown a little bit of interest in the model kits, but I don't, I don't think I've ever bought one. I don't remember buying one. So yeah, that being said, um, yeah, when, when you brought this to my attention, I, I was like, sure, uh, I, I'd be, as a person who's a fan of comics, I'm open to the experience of reading it and to see what I can glean from it. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that made me interested in hearing what you would think about it because I felt like after I read this book, it I was curious what the reaction would be from somebody who isn't super familiar with the history of first Gundam so mm. uh I'm yeah I'm looking forward to what you'll have to say yeah yeah are you uh basically a lab rat for you to test your literary theory <laughs> yeah I will continue to poke and prod you in the guts oh I thought you had more okay <laughs> 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 I thought I had more too. That's one of those yeah. things where I, I said something and then I was like, I was waiting for me to say something more, but I didn't. So I was a little <laughs> confused by myself. Yeah, yeah you, you, you took a dramatic pause and I, I presumed that you know there was going to be we a should, pretty big payoff. You should uh, just so. assume that from now on, anytime I make a dramatic pause that leads to nowhere, I was actually intending to make an awkward <laughs> pause to make you laugh. <laughs> that also leads to nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, I, look, I, 
I'm a team player, so sure. Uh, I, I, I'm willing to to uh, sign on to that logic. But now we might have the opposite problem where I'll just end up cutting you off when you do have something to say. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> if you did that, I would continue to poke and prod you in the guts until... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I see what you did there. It's called the callback, kids. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, yeah. Did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about regarding this book or before we... Yeah. Or, or, or any thoughts that you had prior to reading it? I think prior to reading it, I didn't really know what to expect because I've never read any of Awada's work before. I don't think too much of it has really been translated. The thing that I think he's most famous for is something called The Legend of Koizumi. It's uh, another comedy manga. I've never read it, but I just know the premise and I know that it's uh, something that has lasted or did last uh, quite a long time. Uh, 16 volumes, according to Wikipedia. But The Legend of Koizumi is a story about a Japanese prime minister who... It's it's actually... I think it's based on one of their actual real prime ministers, although this is a completely fictional take on him. But it's based on Junichiro Koizumi. Koizumi and uh, the story is that he settled... You remember him? Yeah, he was. I think he was the prime minister during the George W. Bush era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and this and story is about him settling matters of international diplomacy with mahjong battles. <laughs> I mean, the thing that was uh, interesting about him, from what I remember, was he was. I guess he was their version of like a cool prime minister or something. Oh, okay. Because he didn't really have a, a conventional look to him. Like, he didn't look like a public official or something where, you know, what you would assume or imagine a public official to look like, which is kind of bookish, kind of nerdy, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, like, I think what was the, one of the things I remember about him was I think he was like a fan of Elvis. Oh, okay. Stuff like that. He, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it like eccentricities, but, um, you know, he had interesting hobbies. So yeah, there we go. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess in the legend of Koizumi, the entire thing is about politicians battling each other with high stakes games of mahjong. Sounds sounds bizarre. A shonen. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It ran in a seinen magazine. Maybe it's because uh, of the political aspects. Maybe I don't. I really don't That's know what anything makes about it, it smart. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But that's pretty much all I know about him. He also did. Well, the the other thing I I do know about him is that he also does another Gundam comedy manga called Mobile Suit Gundam Son. Okay. It's a a four panel manga one of those yonkomas where it's pretty similar in format to american newspaper strips that format um except that the japanese version is you know vertical instead of horizontal 
but they're just gag stories about uh well parodies i guess featuring the the main characters of i think it's primarily first gundam so you'll have like amuro and shar and lala sayla and and the rest of the crew uh in funny situations but i I don't really know too much about it either um i i think there is going to be an english uh publication of it i'm not sure if it already came out or when it's coming out but yeah i think i've seen like little bits of it online uh like on twitter or something and it wasn't anything that made me feel like oh yeah i gotta go out and buy this when it comes out it was just more like i look at it once and probably made me chuckle and then i you know scrolled on to the next thing yeah yeah would you well i guess this is kind of jumping the gun a little bit but between that strip and reading this i don't know how do do you feel about this guy's output this guy's work generally speaking um i guess i would probably have to judge him primarily based on the men who created gundam and I, okay. while i did enjoy this comic i don't think it was something that struck me so hard where i'm like oh yeah i gotta track down everything he does now or yeah. anything like that or you know i'm not i'm not specifically rooting for denpa or some other manga publisher to translate some of his other longer works it's i think i think i enjoyed this one because i was a gundam fan and i think that's why i was curious how you would feel about it because i in my mind i sort of thought that yeah if you don't know anything about the history of gundam and if you don't know anything about the people who worked on first gundam it's hard to it was hard for me to imagine this being particularly amusing or even interesting because Mm. so much of it is rooted in in the lore of the creation of the anime because a lot of these uh a lot of the episodes in the manga are based on pretty famous and well-known stories that the creators have talked about in interviews over the several decades you know a lot of the stuff there has has become like kind of famous or ingrained into the general psyche of Gundam fans who care about what the creators have said about their work. Yeah, their cultural milestones. Mm-hmm. If you can think of it something. Uh but yeah, yeah, I I they're not things that I was immediately familiar with. I think there were a couple of things that I had heard about in passing. But, you know, uh, in terms of the finer details, they, there were certain events that I'm pretty sure they were just things that you had told me in conversation. Uh, but, yeah, I, I can't say that they were things that particularly struck a huge note with me outside of that, outside of those conversations. I think the thing about this work is, well, do you want to get into it right now or, or would you rather just talk about it later when, when, when we get, you know, uh, done with the actual analysis? That is a hard question to answer because I have no idea what you're about to ask me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I was going to give just more my assessment of what I read 
I, I guess we could just put it in general impressions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll just I'll 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 give the vaguer version of of what I had to to say about it, but I do think that it was an enjoyable enough piece of work. It's you know, as someone who is unfamiliar or not super familiar with Gundam or the culture that surrounds Gundam, it, it's not a work that made me super interested in Gundam on that level. It didn't make me wanna, you know, go to fan uh, you know, fan sites or anything and try to meet with other Gundam people and, you know, just gush over the the phenomena that is Gundam, right? To be but, fair, I don't think I've ever known you to be the kind of person who ever seeks out fans of anything you like to gush over things with other fans. That's true. That's true. I'm notoriously cold that way. <laughs> yeah. Even, yeah. Even when uh, it was like the late 90s or early 2000s, you never really joined online forums or anything like that, did you? Yeah, that wasn't really my thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's... I think I preferred to just enjoy things the way I prefer to enjoy them. And You're not the kind of person who requires or feeds off of affirmation from fellow fans. You don't need the echo chamber of other people enjoying the I, same thing you like. I'm not you even know. the kind of person that requires the affirmation of people in general. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that being said, um, well, I, I I do think there's some enjoyment out of in-person conversations, right? When like when me and you are conversing over things that we read, that's probably the optimum way for me to enjoy that kind of discourse. That's because uh, there's a mutual respect at play. But I've seen you, I've seen other people try to talk to you at a comic book store and. <laughs> <laughs> and you were just as cold to them as you were you know describing yourself just now yeah you, you know what you've you've got a good point <laughs> i forgot about that <laughs> i forgot about that i've seen people uh, just making small talk with you at a comic book store where you know you guys are digging through comics next to each other and then a guy will pull out something silly and he'll mention it to you and be like oh i remember this I love this when I was a kid or whenever, you know, like when it came out and then yeah. you'll look at it and then I'll see you visibly scowl at whatever comic he's showing you. And then you'll just grunt and be like, huh. And then continue yeah. doing what you're doing. And the guy will just I, look crestfallen. I, I believe I'm the physical manifestation of cool story, bro. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Uh, I, I am that sentiment given life and form. <laughs> uh, right. Um, but I forget what I was uh, getting at. But, well, okay. I, uh, that that aside, that, that reality aside, I, uh, I think I actually thought it served me better to not know anything about Gundam going into it now mm. that I'm in the headspace of someone who's already read it uh, mm -hmm. 
because I think it allowed me to look at it pretty objectively without having to try to reconcile facts and details because to some degree it it was such a blank slate to me that it could have almost been a completely fictionalized story about a fictionalized eccentric anime studio director who has this vision of creating a revolutionary groundbreaking anime and just following his antics and his struggle right mm-hmm. and their their antics and their struggle so it wasn't something where knowing that this was real really did much of anything for me um and and, and like i said if if anything there's a chance that it would have been more of a distraction because you know then i'd be in this position to really read it with some expectation in mind of trying to make it conform to actual events and uh, actual uh, occurrences and, and, and trying to make sense of it that way. But because I, I didn't even enter it with, with that in mind, it, it wasn't something that I really gave any effort to it. it I just, consumed i just read the story and took it pretty much on face value as as to what i was seeing i mean it there are things in it that are obviously over the top and exaggerated and in those instances i think i just left it up to my best judgment to look at these scenes and go oh that's kind of funny um that was probably a bit of an exaggeration or a gag but you know, if someone came to me later and was like, oh, yeah, this was an actual thing uh, that happened, then, you know, maybe I'd, I'd reconsider that, right? Like, mm-hmm. think, think in terms of the dates and times and the names of the people involved, those are probably accurate. I, I don't know if everything played out the way, the exact way that the, the manga uh, portrays it to have played out. But again, it's not something that I really thought about too much because, I mean, I guess I don't look at it as a history book. So, right. I guess, I guess there are some people who, if you're going to judge it based on its accuracy, then, and, and that makes sense, this being a semi biographical comic, that makes sense. But, um, for me, I, I, yeah, that, I don't think that really factored factored too much into my equation, my knowledge of of the source material and the actual events that took place. Really, didn't wasn't something that I thought about too much. Yeah, I think you're right about how you said knowing the real history could actually be a distraction because I felt pretty distracted. I was as I was reading. Uh, the manga at times there are just certain jokes and and things where i was kind of scratching my head at why awada thought that would be funny or if there was Mm. like any basis of his joke in some kind of reality or if he was just you know throwing a punchline with that was completely unrelated to any uh real life situation um like i'd say like one of the biggest 
offenders of that was how he depicted Tomino as this really grabby, handsy kind of guy who was constantly, if he wasn't talking about boobs or butts, he was trying to grab them. And it just made him seem like this creepy serial harasser, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And it's always played as a gag, but I think in my mind, it just like number one, I'd we're never in really heard. Of me. <laughs> what would what, you say? I was gonna say we're in 2023. I don't know that that uh, I don't know that this is as funny as you think it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I don't. I, that that's that's for sure. And then secondly, as far as I know, I, I'm not aware of any like accusations against him for any kind of sexual misconduct or things of that nature. So to me, it felt weird to characterize him like that, even if it's just for comedy, because then like the very fact that he makes somebody wonder, huh, was he really, was Tomino really like that? Like even to a degree, right? Like that's, that's kind of a a, sort of tarnishes a man's reputation in a way, even if it's just played as a joke. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't too big on that. And I didn't even think that that recurring gag was a very funny thing. Maybe there's somebody it's out there who just thinks humor. It's, yeah, I mean it's it's pretty juvenile, so maybe there is somebody out there who does find it more acceptable or okay. But I, I just thought that was yeah. pretty stupid. Yeah, I I did get the impression from our first conversation after you know, you having read it, that these were things that weighed pretty heavily on your on your mind as you were reading it. I mean, not super heavy to the point where you're disgruntled or anything like that, but it, it certainly sounded as if it, it, it affected your enjoyment or your ability to enjoy whatever it was you were reading. It made the work come off as a lot more immature than I probably would have preferred. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's the thing. Like yeah. comedy is always a tough element to handle because not everybody finds the same types of jokes funny. Like everybody's got a different sense of humor and depending on your sensibilities, certain things will make you smile or laugh that won't really affect another person. Whereas with something like drama, you know, most people are moved by similar things or situations. And, and like, that's something that's more universal. You know, it just goes back to the old saying that drama is easy and comedy is hard because it's so hard yeah. to please everybody when you tell a joke. It's, it's really difficult. So I, I do allow for some understanding and leeway there because this is, I'd say first and foremost, this is probably more of a comedy story than it is a depiction of history, you know, even though it's based on history. I personally would say that if somebody's truly interested in learning about the history of First Gundam, it's probably better to read like serious articles or or stories about uh, the creation of it. You know, like that that's something that's more educational. It's like the difference between reading a biography versus watching a biopic or something. Cause you know that with the thing that's designed to be consumed by 
the masses, there's going to be much more liberties taken. And sometimes that's okay if, you know, you can still enjoy it for what it is, but in the back of your mind, you do know, or at least I think smart people would recognize that it's still a dramatization of it. You know, like it's not completely accurate to history. There's still something about it that the person who made the biopic or in this case, the semi-biographical comic, there are liberties taken for the sake of entertainment, for the sake of telling a joke. So if, as long as you understand that, I think it's fine. But I think for people who are trying to learn about the history, that's where mm. I think it might fall a little flat. But on the other hand, it's hard for me to imagine somebody who's not already interested in Gundam picking this up because I feel like this is pretty much aimed at a very specific niche audience. Yeah. I do think you've got a really good point there where if we're talking about it in terms of of a work that's supposed to educate you, I don't think this is necessarily that. It's it, it it does have some facts and details. It's it's not without it completely, but I I don't think that it is solely focused on educating you, right? Mm-hmm. So I I think about well I don't even know if it's necessarily a good comparison, but because okay uh, the 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 one comic or manga that I was thinking about just now was something like. Uh, Showa or something like that, where that's also a biographical manga, but it takes real events and injects some humor in it as well. But yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's like it's well, okay. Showa is more of a an autobiography, autobiographical work. Yeah, 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 exactly. So like the humor is, that's in there is more based on like situational humor, you know, or irony yeah. because of what's going on yeah. in history and, and with, with uh, who is it? Shigeru Mizuki. He's the guy who did mm. the show, right? It's been a while since I read yeah. it, but yeah, from what I remember, it, it's not like it was intending to be a gag manga. It was more just, you know, there's humor in everyday life. Yeah, there's That's occasional kind of humor, humor that, to it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's natural. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess what I was thinking of or what I'm thinking of now is it's it's funny to think of it this way, but if there was a comic that you could give to a classroom that was what what's what's that term for um didactic? Oh, didactic. Well, I guess yeah. educational. Or yeah. Well, is didactic the right word? Yeah, didactic so, right? means it's Where, something intended to teach. Yeah, so I could see a version of this comic that's more straight to the facts and more uh, detailed in that way. But yeah, this this the men who created gun the men who created Gundam certainly isn't that. It's if anything, I, I it almost feels like it's a what's what's that uh. It almost feels like a shonen take on yeah on on the on the subject, you know? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. 
the way that Tomino is drawn is not the way that he looked in 1979. I mean, most of, I don't think any of the people looked the way that they <clears throat> actually looked. Because if you uh, go online and just do an image search for any of the people, yeah. you'll find that they look pretty different. And the way that yeah. that Iwata draws Tomino in this comic is more like how Tomino looked probably like in the, I don't know, like 20, 25, 30 years ago, like in the 90s and early 2000s when he was uh, bald and wore his sunglasses all the time. And, uh, you know, he wasn't as old as he is now, so he still kind of looked like he was in his prime. But in, in the manga, he, he looks like a caricatured version of himself from like 20 years ago. So he looks like he basically looks like Grant Morrison, an Asian Grant Morrison with sunglasses, <laughs> or Spider yeah, Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah, and he kind of acts like I, Spider when Jerusalem. You, yeah, when you described it that way, I, I thought that was a pretty spot-on description of the guy because he's just—he's just a rebel, basically, just a guy who is acting out and total iconic. Even though he. Yeah, even though he seems like a slob and, you know, a ruffian or whatever, he he's a guy who has talent and vision and and drive and determination in spite of those things, right? And mm-hmm. I guess that's what makes him a plucky protagonist. Yeah, is is just this idea of him as Another thing it kind of reminds me of is like GTO, Great Teacher Onizuka, where <laughs> you take this character who who doesn't belong necessarily in that setting and no one takes seriously because, you know, that's just the trend of their life. But then it turns out they were probably the most sincere person out of all the people involved in this work and the most talented person. Mm-hmm. And And that's kind of... I feel like that's a signature of uh, shonen manga is is that sort of plucky determination. Um, yeah, and, and that's why I made that comparison because he he really does feel like he could have been he could have stepped out right out of uh, you know right out out of Naruto or something. <laughs> Maybe Chainsaw Man because the main character in Chainsaw Man really likes boobs. Yeah. Yeah, I I I want to say that in Naruto he's pretty pervy too. Like I I think that's another signature of those kinds of characters is again they're on the surface they just seem really really rough, and part of that does include just being lecherous. lecherous. <laughs> <laughs> I've never actually read or watched any Naruto, so I'll take your word for it. Yeah, yeah, but. I I didn't realize that the are you is the main character in Naruto a horny kid? Um, I think he's just portrayed as a brat, but the way that they portray bratty kids is, you know, they lots of sexual harassment. They, yeah, basically, <laughs> they're <laughs> it's part of the mis- it's part of their charm of a kid. <laughs> well, I. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's part of what makes a kid mischievous in their minds is that it's not just that they, uh, you know, 
don't like to bathe or that they mess around too much but there's there is a certain uh a quality of it where they really don't have any sense of boundaries well, and yeah <laughs> you know what they say boys will be boys <laughs> uh well the nfl definitely tried to make a point that that excuse will not fly anymore, but we've yet to see that uh, <laughs> realized. So, <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> All right. Do you have anything else to say, or would you want to just go into a chapter and chapter breakdown of the the series? I will follow your lead, man. Take us away on a journey. All right. So. Um, the thing about this manga is there are actually 26, I think they call them episodes instead of chapters, but the way that the manga itself structures it is it batches the episodes into chunks that are, I guess, put together. So uh, each chunk is made up of two or three episodes and then Altogether, I want to say that there are like five or six uh, throughout the entirety of the book. So instead of going through each episode or, you know, chapter, whatever you want to call it, um, I'm just going to go and tell the story according to the chunks. Um, I I don't know what the official term is. So, you know, excuse me if that's not uh, an accurate representation, but we'll just go uh, through it one gutter at a time. There we go. <laughs> Ooh, man, that that would be painful. <laughs> All right. Episodes one through three. We meet some of the players in the story. Toru Furuya, a young, earnest actor that will become that will come to voice Amuro Ray. Yoshi Yoshiyuki Tomino, an over-the-top eccentric lech with a vision, and the director of the studio. Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, or Yaz, an animating savant and a, and a snazzy dresser. And Chuichi Aikieda. I'm sorry if I'm butchering all these names, by the way. <laughs> so I'm trying my best. Come on, you gringo. Shuichi... I mean, you gaijin. <laughs> Shuichi, Shuichi Aikieda. A seemingly unprofessional lush until Isn't he is. Shuichi Ikeda. Prom- oh, there we get. There we go. <laughs> Shuichi Ikeda, a seemingly unprofessional lush until he is prompted by the role of a lifetime. He will be the voice of Shar. Yaz and Tomino have a professional history with each other. Tomino has an idea for a new show that will revolutionize the industry. Yaz initially rebuffs Tomino because he thinks it's more of the same, just kid stuff meant to sell toys. But upon finding a, conven- a conveniently placed script, Yaz, Yaz is hooked and he sees it for what Tomino intends it to be. Tomino's scheme has succeeded. Ruya finds Ikeda passed out in front of the aud- audition and is blown away to find out that they're both auditioning for the same role. Ikeda's audition goes terribly he reeks sorry i'm uh my pages are stuck together he (laughs) reeks of alcohol slurs his words and throws up on stage 
Suffice it to say, he doesn't get the part. But upon reading the script, Aikido storms back into the audition and asks to audition for the role of Shar, and he knocks it out of the park. So that's uh that's episodes one to three. All right. What do you think? First of all, I, I think going back to what we were saying about how the characters or the principal people are depicted is part of the joke. Like the way that he draws Tomino, I uh, already talked a little bit about that, but I want to bring up Yaz because the way that uh, Owada draws Yaz in the manga looks nothing like the actual Yaz. Like the way that he draws Yaz, he makes he draws Yaz like the bad guy from Zeta Gundam. That's what he looks like. So if if you ever end up watching Zeta Gundam, which is the sequel to First Gundam, Yaz was character designer on that as well. But the bad guy in that show is this guy with uh, really beady eyes and uh, like luscious, b- beautiful purple hair, and that's pretty much what. He looks like in The Men Who Created Gundam. Uh, that's what Yaz looks like, except maybe uh, the clothes are different because for some reason he's always wearing these leisure suits looking high class. Or I think, I forget if it was in these early chapters or later on where we see him driving like a Lamborghini or something, which is pretty outlandish because that's not the kind of you know aura that Yaz conveys at all. Like that dude was a farm boy and came from like, the boonies of Japan from what I know. And, and just like, he was like a more of a stocky, strong kind of guy who could, you know, haul bales of hay or something and really knock you out physically. Whereas in, in the comic, he's portrayed as this really slick looking kind of this Bishonen pretty boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it's it was interesting to me when you mentioned it uh because when we were talking about it you mentioned that he reminded you he made you question if Yazuhiko was a part of the yakuza or something cuz well the the guy who that, looks like a yakuza is uh the voice actor of Shar Shuichi Ikeda oh, like, he's uh, the guy that I think okay, looks okay. like a yakuza <laughs> he's got that okay. that distinctive hairstyle that just looks like a generic or stereotypical anime yakuza character <laughs> yeah and then the fact I mean, that i was gonna say <laughs> oh no go ahead go ahead. go ahead no what were you gonna say i was just gonna tack on that the the fact that owada makes ikeda this alcoholic that that's weird to me too because i like i never heard of him being an alcoholic or having any kind of issues like that so for him to just throw that in there, it, it made me scratch my head. Huh. Like that's probably one of those things where he's it's just a joke for a joke's sake, but there's nothing really there to connect it with reality, as far as I know. I mean, if I'm wrong, then maybe mm-hmm. that's just my lack of knowledge of Ikeda, but uh even if so, it, it it would feel like a really weird thing to make fun of if if a guy was actually an alcoholic or had problems with alcoholism, you know? Like, I don't know if I would turn him into a caricature of a raging <laughs> drunk. Would you? Right. Uh, 
I think it depends to the degree that he's a drunk. <laughs> I mean, if, <laughs> if it turns out that he's got a serious problem and his wife and children have have become uh, uh, what's it called <laughs> estranged from him because of it, then I probably wouldn't make a joke out of it. So there's yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, I, I again, this this is a thing where what informs me is is absolutely nothing because I I have no idea what any of these people are like in real life. So when as I was reading it, I just I I think I just took it as oh okay that's that's who they are uh, for the purposes of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I. Yeah, I think when you told, okay, well, when we were talking about it, I was under the presumption that you were talking about Yazuhiko as as this uh, Yakuza character, but um, I guess that was a different character. Um, yeah, but Ikeda. What I was going to say, yeah, but what I was going to say about that was it, it just feels like Yazuhiko just kind of looks like the like one of the the anime tropes that you would see for the kind of characters that inhabit these kinds of shows so there's certain archetypes that you'll see you'll see kind of the tough guy and then you'll see you know kind of the pretty boy and that's that's what i was seeing when i was Mm -hmm. looking at yaz was he he seemed kind of like whatever the japanese anime version of a dandy or a fop was yeah was you know this person who they do this thing in anime where whenever the the guy or the girl does this look there's like a sparkle and a glitter and then there's like Mm -hmm. a slow slow motion sort of thing but all this effect is in service of emphasizing the fact that there's something you know beautiful about this person magnificent about this person that makes him just so attractive to other people right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. and again i don't know i don't know anything about yaz's life i don't know if that's what he was like during that period um i i think i just looked at it and just viewed it as well if these are aspects of their personality that they're just exaggerating for the sake of comedy that's that's a potential that's that's a possible uh uh reason for it but other than that i didn't really think about it too much beyond that right yeah i i didn't even yeah like ikeda i i didn't i wasn't even that i i it hadn't occurred to me at all to to think that he was you know associated with the yakuza or anything like that <laughs> i was kind of surprised when you brought it up and and having read it it's i guess i could see it but it's yeah it's 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 still something that i, I don't think i think about too much yeah that's good i do like him as an actor <laughs> he, he's probably yeah, one yeah, of my yeah. favorite anime voice actors though like he's, yeah. he's just got such a a great confident deep voice like anytime he plays Shar or i've seen some other movies some other anime where he he's he plays uh like a villain or something like he's just got that smooth cunning voice that that makes you feel like yeah 
this guy, he's a bad guy, but there's something about him that's got a lot of charisma too, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that the the start of the of the the manga is actually a pretty it's pretty funny cuz it starts out with what's his name? Uh you're talking about uh Furia? Yeah, Furia and it's him trying to recite these lines and you know, there's this reveal that he's actually reciting the lines to Tomino and no matter what he does, he just can't get it until Tomino decides Okay, try this. And he walks up and he just socks the dude in the chest. Yeah, because <laughs> he was trying to read the like, lines from the scene where uh, Amro says, even my father never hit me or something, right? The scene where Bright yeah. slaps him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, he he's, 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 he hits him and he goes, try to, try to say it now. And he repeats it, but he still doesn't get it. And the guy just... Uh, Tomino just keeps slapping and beating him until he he eventually gets it right. But at that point, he's just you know a bloody pulp. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That that's the kind yeah. of comedy that I can that that can make me chuckle. You know, like it's silly, slapstick, <laughs> but it's yeah. The, I think the way that it's drawn is pretty amusing. Just the intensity of it all. Yeah, the exaggerated intensity. Yeah. I also think it's cool how they establish uh, Ikeda and Furia's relationship right here at the beginning of this because, mm-hmm. you know, even though they're just these two actors that are working together, and at that moment in time, I'm sure they just think it's another job or something, right? It, yeah. it just feels like it's not as going to be as substantial as they are going to realize it to be all the, all the years later because mm-hmm. their career would be so intertwined with one another that, yeah, that, that it affects them having a relationship in real life, essentially. If you can think about it this way, it'd be like thinking of the Simpsons actors who have been on that show forever at this point. And, you know, you imagine that because because of the because of the job they're 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 i don't want to say forced but they're in these conditions where they have a more than normal intimate work uh working relationship with these people just because they've been doing it for such a long time you know right so mm-hmm. it, it's a pretty good setup for these two characters these two actors who aren't aware that they're about to be tied to one another for like decades. Yeah. Yeah. You got anything else about this early section or you want to move on to the next, next uh, block of episodes? We can move on to the next block. So episodes four through six, we meet the sponsor of the show. She, Shichiro Kuroba, Kuroba, the president of the toy company. His funding is a blessing and a curse. The dollars make it so that the show can exist at all, but the level of investment means he has a stake, and that stake comes with interference. Kuroba comes to the studio to make his presence known and to ensure that Tomino's works are Tomino's works are aligned with his own interest. Out of all the things they discuss, the one big takeaway is that the Gundam isn't colorful enough. Tomino insists that that doesn't make any sense. His story is a military epic, 
and in the real world, there are no brightly colored instruments of war. In the end, Tomino concedes, perhaps too willingly. We learn, we learn that the Gundam and its color scheme were all offered up as a decoy. The prize was that Tomino would get away with designing the Zaku enemy fighters however he wanted. And boy, did he have some ideas. Tomino goes to his mecha designer, Kunio Okawara, Okawara, and has him unleash a plethora of designs. The studio team rushes to get the first episode out. They put themselves through hell, but they get it done. The first episode airs and the returns are in. Gundam was only able to reach 3% of the audience in its debut showing. By any metric, that was a bad, that was a bad look. But in this darkest of moments, there was a glimmer of light as they would catch the attention of Masan, Masanobu Komaki, the editor-in-chief of Animec. He will be another important figure in the, in the history of Gundam. After his first viewing, he is so moved that he immediately gets his publication to do a special feature. The show continues to chug along, yet it still struggles to get ratings. Tomino and Yaz have a discussion, and Tomino starts throwing out all kinds of ideas, new enemies in every episode, and new add-ons and power boost. Yaz is incensed because of all the added stress and work it will place on the animators. But as he gets a closer look, he sees that the normally stoic Tomino is crying. The sponsors have told him if the toys sell, they can overlook the ratings. Tomino knows this is asking a lot, but it's his only chance and Yaz acquiesces. Try as they might, though. With, with episode 26, they lose, they lose Amori, and the show was off the air. And to add to the catastrophe, the stress of production finally takes its toll, and Yaz passes out. Yeah, that the is scene... Episodes four through six. Mm -hmm. The scene where that you described where Tomino is telling... Yeah, is that we got to add all these add-ons and toys and or you know to be more toyetic and all this other stuff to appease the sponsor and Yaz is incensed but when Tomino when he listens to Tomino Tomino's crying there's something funny about that one <laughs> I think that was yeah probably one of my favorite jokes or at least one of the ones that I still remember hmm. it's interesting because I look at that scene and even though it's pretty exaggerated I do think that there's a streak of sincerity to it. Because yeah, I think that's why it works as a joke. Mm -hmm. There is that say, emotionally resonant sincerity behind it. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Uh, up to this point, we've gotten this image of Tomino as this guy who really has this passion for this idea that he wants to see come to fruition. And for someone like that to be so driven by the by the vision that they hope to achieve, it, it makes sense that if you throw them a lifeline, any lifeline, just so that they can keep going, even if it's only for a little longer, um, that they'll do whatever they can. So... Mm -hmm. uh, and we've seen this in American comics too. It reminds me of uh, that Daredevil run 
that was done by Chichester. And this was a conversation me and you had where Chichester was talking about how he followed up Frank Miller's run, which was, you know, just this massive juggernaut. Well, uh, he didn't run. directly follow Miller's run. I think he followed Anosenti. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, okay. Uh, my point being... Just working he, in the shadow of Frank to live up to. Yeah. Yeah, he had a lot to live up to. He And so, and I think there was sales slumps or something like that in that it was period the of 90s. time. Yeah, so he really was just throwing everything against the wall to try to make his his run on Daredevil work. So that included guest appearances if they needed to do guest appearances, new costumes, all the same kind of gimmicks that Tomino is talking about here in this Gundam. So um, yeah, to see Tomino just so desperate to have his, you know, have his baby see the light of day and Yazuhiko, when when he gets all upset about it, it and and you know it's it's not a anger that comes out of nowhere because it is going to be a lot of work because they're doing these episodes and what do they ask? What does Tomino want? He wants a different villain every week as opposed to stock Zaku footage that they can use again and again. That's that's tough to do, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it so, really is a lot of work. It really is. And then when they show Yazuhiko, you know, grabbing him by the shoulders only to get a close up of his face and to see that Tomino's crying. I mean, it's it is an exaggerated look, but I felt his pain in that moment more than I felt yeah. any any desire to look at that as comedy. I was just like especially, you know, Tomino being portrayed as this kind of tough guy the whole time to see him break in that one instance, there was something about that, that, that I felt, you know, I, I felt bad for him. Totally, man. Yeah. yeah. That was a pretty big moment in the comic. I think even yeah in the real history of Gundam too, you know, like that was definitely <clears throat> one of the big compromises that they had to capitulate and, um, I think that's why if you watch the TV series and then watch the movies, you'll see that the movies get rid of a lot of that nonsense. Like they get rid of a lot of the various power-ups and stuff that the Gundam gets. And, uh, you know, it's just a little bit more streamlined, Mm. which Mm. is, you know, pretty similar to how Yaz portrays it in the origin manga. You know, he doesn't give the Gundam all sorts of, different power-ups and stuff like it's more militaristic or realistic from a science fiction military standpoint as opposed to trying to be more toyetic Mm. yeah yeah i was also going to mention that one scene uh and this was a scene that i remember you telling me about so it's that's that's probably my primary context for it is uh, the entire conversation that he has with the president or the toy company where they're talking about how, oh, this Gundam, we're trying to sell it to kids. We need to, to have a bunch of bright colors. You know, kids are going to, kids kids have to want to buy it. And, you know, 
and ultimately it all ends up being part of a a bigger you know 3d chess game that tomino is playing because he knows oh um this is the sort of thing that the executives are going to try to interfere on so i'm going to need to make it look like this is something that i'm begrudgingly against but instead it's what he's offering up as you know a fig leaf or something so that he can you know really have fun on the designs that he wants to have which is the zakus being yeah. just these total badass looking tanks <laughs> mhm the mobile suit zakus yeah. that are pretty much as iconic as any gundam i would say it's funny to think cuz usually in those kind of shows in these mecha shows the the enemy unit the cannon fodder that's not usually one of the ones that that uh is regarded as like a top seller if you're trying to sell a toy you know like most kids want to buy the heroes ship mm. or the heroes robot so um i guess in a way the, the zaku has become iconic in its own right where you know even 40 50 years later it's still the design that uh stands out as much as any gundam does it's recognizable and still comes up in uh, all sorts of what do you call it multimedia spin-offs and and things like that you know you when you play yeah merchandise when you when you play a gundam video game or something you'll still see a zaku in there yeah um and the model kits it sort of you know perennial me, seller yeah it makes me think of that adage about how if you have a hero to a story the villain has to be just as good as the hero mm-hmm. in order to in order to make you care about the story right because yeah. you know the if the hero's fighting someone that's lame for 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 all intents and purposes then you don't really feel like there's any real threat going on there uh mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and and all in all you just want an experience where you can enjoy the look of these things fighting one another right so you know, yeah you know the gundam has to look cool the hero has to look cool but yeah you need you need the designs to be good looking all around so that you can really immerse yourself in the experience of of whatever action you're watching exactly speaking of the designs the way that awara depicts kunio okawara is pretty funny too the mecha designer for first gundam the way that he's depicted in this manga is like this gruff mechanic who actually has like a machine shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, as opposed to just being another artist, he actually has a machine yeah. shop. <laughs> I thought that was he, a pretty he's funny. He's kind of got a tough guy look. Yeah, uh, he's got those funny yeah. looking sideburns. And like aviator glasses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. No, you're right. It's uh I hadn't considered it until just now, but you're right. It's if if this was the real world that'd be pretty bizarre cuz yeah. this guy's a toy designer and he yeah. has a like an auto body shop <laughs> yeah i mean he wasn't even really it's... a toy designer until gundam i guess because the main thing that he was a designer of was just animation you know like mecha designs mechanical designs 
And then they just and it just so happened that the things that he designed became so successful that people made toys based on them. Mm-hmm. But if you look at, I think in the manga there are some some of those text pages where they they cover the real history and give you some photos of the actual toys. Uh, I don't remember if there there was a picture of of uh, the Gundam toy in the book or if it's maybe it was just something that I saw a picture of in, in some article online, but. If you look at the original toys from back then, or the ones that came out when the show came out, the Gundam doesn't exactly look like the way it looks in the TV series. Like there's, I guess it's still recognizable, but you can tell that they took some definite creative liberties just for the sake of making a toy. Whereas, you know, fast forward a few years when the model kit boom happened that was when accuracy started mattering and you know you'd see gundams that actually looked like how they looked in the show and now like mm. it's become this phenomenon where the accuracy is such an important factor and you have like i guess i guess i would call them mecha nerds or something where people who care so much about <laughs> the machines that they have like pictures of schematics and you know they know like the real life a quote-unquote real-life height and weight of these <laughs> fictional things. They have all these statistics and stuff. It's like this whole world that you can fall into in and of itself. So it's funny to think of how Awada in the manga just depicts the mecha designer as a literal mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> you want to move on to episode 7 through 9? Yeah, let's check it out. Episode 7 through 9. With Yaz hospitalized, the animation team is facing dire straits trying to keep up with production. Tomino is called into a meeting with some ominous uh, ominous, ominous (laughs) executives. I like that. Uh, Omino. (laughs) With some ominous executives. There's discussion of the poor ratings and putting Tomino on another show after the holidays toy rush. Afterwards, Tomino goes on a bender. He is at his lowest point. Next morning, he is bailed out of prison, in, and in his stupor, he goes to the studio at 5 a.m., only to find that everyone is in the studio working feverishly. They all know that Gundam is canceled, but they still believe in Tomino's vision, and with that, he finds his will to fight once again. Tomino first... Tomino's first course of action is to go down to Animec to meet with Masanbu Kamaki, the magazine editor who put out the special feature on Gundam. It is while they are in discussion that Tomino learns that there were thousands of fan letters in response to the special feature, and he sees his chance. He informs Kamaki to announce the cancellation of the show to their readers. They are going to take their case directly to the people. The response is resounding. The people who want Gundam, the people want Gundam, and they are calling and writing to whoever they can to let it be known. Kuroba, the president of the toy company, calls Tomino to let him know about the success of the toys and to see if he can extend the show further, to which Tomino coyly replies back about how the story is already done and it would take tremendous effort to rework it. But in his mind, he was already plotting for his next move. Yaz is in the hospital, comments on how Tomino is starving the audience. 
and there is something on the horizon. Yeah. yeah. So th this uh this particular I guess I'll just call it chapter for the sake of convenience. This particular cha mm -hmm. chapter is one that just shows you know the the harsh reality of what it's like working in a studio and how beholden to these metrics you are and I have a feeling that's that's something that resonates with a lot of us. There's 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 got to be a show or uh, a work that all of us enjoy that just got canceled way too soon just because the general masses don't realize it for what it is or because it doesn't make money or mm -hmm. or whatever what have you and you know us being comic book collectors that's something that's a reality we live with yeah regularly you know yeah. that's that is not unfamiliar to us at all so many so, of our favorite comics have been canceled prematurely. Exactly, exactly. And this is stuff by good writers. Um, if they're lucky, they get to go on to do more work on something else, works that they want to do in the way that they want to do it. But if not that, uh, they're, you know, in the worst case scenario, there are just instances where writers disappear altogether. It's, it's a harsh business. And, uh, I don't I, I feel for the people who, who just want to tell a story and create something that that is done their way and something that they can look back at and be proud of. Yeah. It can be pretty tough. Yeah. And sometimes they just end up finding work and writing work in other industries. Like mm. I remember uh Sean McKeever ended up working in video games for a, a long time i think he might still be working there but at least a couple years ago he was able to get back into comics he had at post zero over at image and i think he might be doing some more stuff uh with some other publishers uh more recently but there was a big chunk of time when he kind of disappeared and i was like dude what happened to this guy he was good you know like i liked quite a bit of yeah. his stuff maybe he wasn't a superstar big name kind of guy but like everything that i did read from him was solid and enjoyable and some of it was like really remarkable but he just disappeared and i guess you know the big two didn't offer him any more work and then uh, when i looked at his social media it just seemed like he was uh, working at a at video game company so you know at least he wasn't like in dire straits or anything but as a fan yeah. of comics, it still hurt to see that he wasn't able to continue on in comics, you know, or at least it, it took a, quite a few more years before we saw him in comics again. Yeah. And I remember you telling me a story about how how Marvel, and I, I, I assume DC works the same way, but essentially how they do business is that they'll use you to, you know, they'll give you work to work on whatever stories they want you to work on for whatever period of time. And when they're done with you, there's no real formal discussion or anything like that. It's just one day they just stop calling. Yeah. I mean, that's the life of a freelancer. It's not easy. Yeah, it isn't. It's harsh. And um, you mentioned, you know, uh, DG Chichester earlier when you were talking about Daredevil, but you don't see his name in comics anymore. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a ton of people who just disappear. 
Yeah, I remember reading an interview with him. Doing... Yeah. Yeah, and, and he basically said that after Daredevil, you know, there wasn't... I think he might have did a, done a little work for Acclaim Comics or something. But after the comics work dried up, he just ended up getting work in a different industry. So, uh, you know, and it seems like he's put this part of his career behind him. Even yeah. though he's still willing to talk about it, because I think there are some fan sites that would interview him about his Daredevil run and things like that. But those are the kind of things that come up in the conversation where you just realize that once the work stopped being offered, and it wasn't like he was a, a bad writer or anything, there are definitely a lot of worse guys out there who continue to get work. But for whatever yeah. reason, they just weren't offering him work. So he had to do what he had to do to make a living and I'm pretty yeah. sure the living he makes now is probably better than the living he makes as a comic book writer. But yeah. as a reader, I selfishly wish that he wrote more comics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think even from a creative perspective, the people that get into comics, I don't, I don't know if many of them really get into it with the belief that they're going to become super mega rich or anything like that. It, Not they, everybody can you know, become the I, Todd father. Did you say Todd Father like Tater Tots? Todd Father, like Todd McFarlane. You know, Todd rhymes with God. I prefer Tot Father because <laughs> at least I like Tater Tots. <laughs> I wish Todd, I wish T Mac was Tot Mac. <laughs> uh, I would I'd have more respect for him if he made his success developing a way to make delicious tater tots. <laughs> <laughs> Even in an episode uh, about a Gundam manga, we still find a way to make fun of Todd McFarlane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I was going to say as a creator, like that's the sad thing is they go into it wanting to do it for the love of comics and to be denied that like you said, I'm sure their careers are substantially better doing whatever they're doing now. Uh, there's more financial stability, certainly, but I, I have to imagine that there's a, a degree of heartache that's always going to be in existence because the thing that you really wanted to do that you love doing, you just can't because they won't let you. Yeah. But the the upside is we do live in a different era now where uh, the ability for people to truly do what they want is is now more in their favor than ever. Um, you know, mm -hmm. if they decide that they want to just do comics, they don't have to go through Marvel. They can do their own thing, and many of them do. You know? Yeah. So yeah. Kickstarter, silver and, lining. Yeah, crowdfunding and posting stuff on the internet, social media. A lot of that stuff does help creators sell their stuff and make a living yeah the, the yeah. other thing that i would want to bring up uh because it, it's something we see in the manga but it's also something that i think we see happen in the comics industry and the animation industry like a lot of these entertainment a lot of these industries that provide us with the entertainment that we love is that the people who do the hard labor of drawing or animating like suffer a lot of burnout and it's just a very labor intensive job so when you when i think of that story of yaz uh, having a medical issue where he has to go to the hospital and he gets laid up there for quite a while 
you know that that's not healthy and mm. you know a couple of weeks ago we were reading uh a zoo in winter and that was about uh the manga industry in the late 60s and a young man's aspiration to break into manga and even in that one like there were definitely hints that it just required a whole lot of work you know even though they're doing kind of like assembly line work in a studio they're still kind of breaking their backs and going a bunch of hours with maybe a couple of days without sleep just for the sake of finishing a comic and that's not really something sustainable whether it's drawing comics or trying to churn out enough animation cells well i guess today people don't use cells but uh whatever computer uh program that they use you know like if you're constantly overworking yourself just to get something done at some point something is not going to get done because people have limited energy and it's yeah. not it's not healthy for the people and it does make the final product suffer as well like there's a lot of anime even in in uh modern anime where the production issues really affect the the final show you know like you can you can definitely see the point where the show kind of struggles to keep up with the pace of the release and it just kind of falls apart where the animation is either substantially less quality or maybe they'll do one of those episodes where they do a recap and just recut a bunch of footage to tell you what happened before you know stuff like that is just kind of painful to consume if you're enjoying a show and you got to sit through something like that but there's nothing that really can be done you know because yeah you know we understand that something like anime with a set release schedule you know they kind of have to release it by a certain time otherwise there's nothing really that the station can air but on the other hand it kind of makes you question why do they uh create these schedules that are so oppressive in the first place yeah yeah absolutely i don't know it's i think it's the it's the tough middle ground between a business and like art like in a perfect world we would have patrons or you know some sort of funding where people who want to do art truly do art the way that they want to do it are given the support and the funding and the means to do it but you know because we live in in a uh in a capitalistic society where where unfortunately we have to monetize everything um a lot of those things end up going out the door as a result because you you're always going to have someone who's going to be there to essentially tell you hey this is what you're allowed to do this is what you're not allowed to do because you know the people that are floating you the dollars so that you can make this happen hey guess what uh we're not they're not artists but they are certainly going to make their voices known uh if mm -hmm. they are displeased with something or if they think that it's gonna hurt their bottom line you know yeah and i do um, think uh now that you mention it i do think that the men who created gundam does 
do a decent job of like portraying that phenomenon you know like it does a good job of conveying the idea of uh the compromises between art and commerce and trying to balance those things or the the tension the struggle maybe even a little bit of the burnout with the creatives although i feel like it doesn't really the story doesn't really focus on the regular animators it, it's really just about these principal people but it, yeah i'm pretty sure like yaz wasn't the only one who was suffering maybe he was the only one who went to the hospital but i'm pretty sure like all the regular people who are depicted in the manga happily working at 5 a.m or whatever you know i'm pretty <laughs> sure a lot of those people actually weren't really yeah. that enthusiastic or happy about it <laughs> yeah 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 well i mean yeah that's the thing you 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 when you tell a story you have to be able to personify certain things right so i'm i'm sure that uh your average joe wasn't was was struggling just as much as uh yaz was um you know but it just so happens that he's the face that they they put mm-hmm. with it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i wanted to mention or or talk a little bit about what you were saying there too about how um the manga does take the effort to show what the i guess what the what the power dynamics is between um these funders these executives and the artists and animators that are trying to create this anime as a passion project right it's this really delicate house of cards that they're trying to keep from falling apart. And one of the things that caught my attention is just how much of the book is spent on them scheming, you know? Um, and and that, that makes it sound more malicious than uh, I intended to sound. There's, But I, I don't really feel like there's any other way to put it because there's that scene where Tomino is talking about the toys and he he offers up the gundam as as this you know fake thing that the studio execs can look at and be like okay we we told him we showed him who's boss and you know he's (laughs) gonna do what we say because uh sometimes you just got to keep him in check right Mm -hmm. but really what tomino was doing was he was offering that up so that he could really get away with designing the zaku mobile suits the way he wanted and it's it's something that made me think of another work as i was reading it uh just this level of effort that they were putting into achieving their goal and it's interesting to me that it made me think of it because i don't actually one i've never actually read it even though i'm aware of the work and two um I I don't think I'm too big of a fan of the writer or generally what the writer is trying to say. Is it because but the I do writer recognize... is a sexual harasser or did something other, something else that was pretty <laughs> naughty? Uh, the writer wasn't a sexual harasser, but uh, I think it's fair to say that if I knew the writer in person, there's a chance that I would not want to know this person. That I would find my that I would find them pretty abrasive. Um, you know, because mostly, okay, well, I'll just get into it. But 
the the thing that this that this manga really made me think of was the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, and Oof. Ayn Rand, yeah, and and I don't even mean that in a bad way because I don't think I think there are aspects of Ayn Rand's work that I think from an abstract perspective sounds like it could be things that I can accept, but just knowing about her personal philosophy and how she views the world, it's 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 something that informs my reading of her work. And as a result, it makes it hard for me to really enjoy her work, even though she isn't a se- sexual harasser. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one instance in which her personality might be the thing that uh, just turns me off it. Her but, worldview, um, philosophy. Her, her worldview exactly exactly so if you've never read the fountainhead and you know i'll i'll gladly admit i haven't read it but i do know enough about it where you read um, the cliff notes you know, man I've, I've read the cliff notes i've seen some of the reviews uh so it's you're an expert <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so you know if you have a paper to write feel free to ask <laughs> feel free to email us at between the gutters but the thing is um you know the fountainhead is in short, it's a story about a creative person who has the singular vision of having their having their work of art come to life and be completed the way that they want it to be completed without any sense of compromise whatsoever. And it really is a work that views other people as obstacles to that goal, right? Uh, like, mm-hmm. I think part of her philosophy of objectivism is that the ideal man is one who forgoes um, any kind of consideration whatsoever as long as they are they have the integrity to seek out their goals and to see them through right and mm-hmm. to some degree like when we look at works of arts uh, the, there's a part of me that gets that because when we've seen far too often what happens when editorial gets involved and you know screws up a comic because you know we're trying to sell uh certain uh, you know we're, we're trying, trying to, to sell make t-shirts, spider-man man. lunch boxes yeah exactly so you know you gotta show him uh you know with this magic lunch box that saves his life that way <laughs> the kids will buy it stuff yeah. like that you know but um yeah, so when I was reading uh, The Men Who Created Gundam, there's a quality to it that does remind me of that because what they are, are they are just artists who, especially Tomino, at least the way that he's portrayed in the book, he's just a guy who really has this vision for doing a story that he wants to do. He wants to revolutionize anime, right? And he is so committed to that goal that he's willing to harm himself in such in such ways that are just that will ultimately take their toll on his mental well-being and his health mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but that's that's this that's his struggle is that we're we're viewing the struggle of an artistic of of an artist and a creator who is really at odds and in conflict with these vested forces that are going to try to tell him, hey, you're not 
doing well enough in ratings, so we're going to cancel you. And 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 in that sense, I do think they there's a similarity between those two works, but the only the the big difference is I just don't think that Tomino is a jerk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I don't think he's I don't think his commitment to his goal is so one so single-minded that he completely and utterly disregards other people to the point where he's a sociopath you know yeah yeah but but then again there's a chance that he could be a sexual harasser by the <laughs> by the time we find out of, of, uh you know based on this comic based on this manga so for all we know <laughs> he might not be that great at all oh man see that that's uh, what those gags those recurring gags have done to you they've made you uh suspect that he could made potentially... me question yeah they made you question man <laughs> yeah speaking about tomino but, i will say that yeah. online he definitely has the reputation of a curmudgeon especially oh. in the past like 10 15 years or so when with the advent of twitter and things like that uh i think oh. there's a lot of he's kind of a polarizing figure in in anime i would say because there are definitely quotes and things that he said that often get taken out of context where i could see why people would be upset or be offended that he had the audacity to criticize a fellow professional or say something but uh if you actually like watch video of his interviews when he's usually when he says stuff like that he's kind of smirking you know like I don't actually think that he's serious about like being disrespectful or saying stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to think of like, what's an example of, of something. I guess the only thing that really comes to mind is I remember uh, it was either around the time when your name or weathering with you came out by the film by Makoto Shinkai. And for whatever reason, there was this interview with Tomino and I don't remember what the person asked him, but somehow the topic of Shinkai's work came up and Tomino basically said something like Shinkai's work. It's, it's always about like, it's, it's limited in his mind because uh, it's always about these uh, young people who have this, uh, you know, romantic longing for each other. Their hands are always reaching out to touch each other, except the boy's hand never touches the girl's crotch. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a funny thing right like him saying that is yeah. is pretty absurd and i, I think people yeah. were actually yeah. mad that he said that because it was like how could you not like makoto shinkai's work how can you you know say that about it but i'm pretty sure he was he was being kind of like cheeky about it you know like that's yeah. not the kind of yeah. thing where i would i would be offended by but i think there are people who who would see that and be like man this old guy doesn't know anything about modern anime like he's always railing against it or whatever but yeah you know in my opinion well, it's, that's do... like that's like when alan moore says something about marvel or dc like he can say that dude yeah well i was gonna say it's i, I do think we do live in an age uh, especially the twitter age where uh people are pretty quick to react to things uh, in fact the response is almost the point a lot of the times yeah you're so right it's it, like it's it's not i don't even know if it's it's the type of thing that is valid in any way um 
especially if you just look at it in terms of a tongue-in-cheek joke. Um, and, you know, based on what I've read in the manga, and, and you know, I'll, I'll concede again that I, I don't know how accurate this is of him as in terms of a depiction, but he does seem like the kind of guy who says pretty incendiary things just to see what will happen, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so... And I, I yeah, think he has I, that kind of self-awareness too. Like his, his the yeah. stuff that he says online or in public, I think he un- recognizes that he's playing almost kind of this caricature of people's perception of him. And he's just playing it yeah. up, you know? He's a heel. Yeah. <laughs> he's a wrestler. <laughs> yeah. You want to move on to the next episodes? Sure. Okay. We are now on, I believe, episodes 10 through 13. Sorry, I just want to make sure that I don't get my notes mixed up. Okay, um, so we are in episodes 10 to 13. So as the show wraps up, everyone prepares to go their separate ways. As the last episode airs, ratings are up and viewership is up. And Tomino meets with the same shady executives, but now from a position of power. His hand is much stronger. In spite of the progress, the executives want more. But this time, Tomino came with a guest, Shiro Kyoda of Bandai, and they have a proposition. The introduction of a plastic toy model line. This movie, this move would set the groundwork for Gundam becoming an even bigger behemoth down the road. But in the short term, this was the move they needed to convince the executives to rebroadcast the show starting on March 5th, 1980. In an interview with Tomino, Sorry, I, I can't read my handwriting. In an interview with Tomino, uh, in an interview, Tomino continues his tactic of starving the audience by calling Gundam incomplete and not worth watching, all while teasing more story in the form of a movie. The article goes out, and the fans are frothing at the mouth for more. And as all this is happening, Yaz is finally ready to make his return. The foundation is set. Tomino gets the ball rolling on the next part of his plan by going to a movie studio to see if he can push for the creation of a movie. He meets with Okayama, with Okayama, president of Shochiku, president of Shochiku, who proceeds to ask Tomino if he's going to be making Yamato, a Yamato movie for them. Tomino leaves this meeting crestfallen until he realizes the subtext of what Okayama is asking, which is if Gundam can be as big of a hit as Yamato. Uh, Tomino lets Okayama know that animation is no joke and it demands to be taken seriously. Kyoto arrives in time to show off the new models from Bandai. These toys are going to end up being a big deal. And that's the end of uh, chapters 10 through 13. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, Bandai is a big player. I mean, they make all the model kits, and eventually they pretty much ended up owning the Gundam IP because they. Oh. Yeah, they ended up. Yeah, so so they ended up uh, acquiring Sunrise. I forget what year that happened. And then, uh, you know, Bandai and Namco, the video game company, had a merger uh, in the, I think, in the 2000s. Uh, so they continue to get bigger, um, and then Bandai Namco ended up pub, uh, purchasing 
Sotsu, which is the advertising agency that controlled the commercial rights to the Gundam franchise. So with the acquisition of Sunrise and Sotsu, they ended up fully owning the Gundam IP. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah, those uh, model kits really paid off, man. Mm-hmm. I do have a question about this this section, though. And this might be a thing where my... Uh, my knowledge of Japanese culture definitely hinders my understanding of, of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So uh, as I was writing the notes for this, I was I really wasn't sure about the interaction between Tomino and Okayama, where he gets him in there and Tomino is all excited because he's like, I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna have a meeting with this guy. I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna tell him I'm working on the biggest, hottest anime right now, and you're gonna give me a movie because you're gonna want to get in on the ground floor of this, right? But then the guy just goes, Oh, um, yeah, you worked with us on Yamato. So are you gonna make a Yamato movie for us? And <laughs> you know, he 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 basically gets crushed because he's like they don't care about Gundam. They just wanted me to make another Yamato movie for me. And then he has that realization. And uh, yeah, I had a hard time really understanding <laughs> what what the realization was. I kind of just had to take a stab at the dark in the dark eventually just to be able to write the notes. But from my understanding, if I'm understanding it correct, yeah, it, it was basically just subtext, right? Uh, he wasn't because they were saying that there's rules against studios poaching creators from other studios. So they couldn't get him. I, like, I, I really, yeah, I was kind of lost on that. Did yeah, you... I'm not sure if there were rules about poaching artists from other studios. I mean, I'm sure it was frowned upon or, you know, people would, yeah. Whoever was in charge would be offended that somebody stole his worker or something, you know, that's natural uh but as far as yamato goes i i do know that space battleship yamato was pretty massive in the early and mid 70s and then uh the movie that the first yamato movie was a big phenomenon in japan as well so that was a, a big hit that i think started to open up the people's eyes to the idea of a an anime film actually being a financial success viable yeah mm-hmm. yeah viable yeah i believe yasuhiko right. worked on the yamato show and probably the movie as well before going over mm-hmm. to gundam uh but i don't really know too much else uh, about it other than uh that he did some some work on it hmm. so I, i'm not really sure actually what was your question again <laughs> I was just really confused by by that exchange between him and the uh, and the executive or the director at the uh, Yamato studio because it seems like was it because the guy didn't is, know what Gundam was and he thought that uh, if you were gonna make an anime movie it would be a Yamato movie because that's the only anime that that executive was familiar with. It was something like that, but then the thing is, uh, Tomino ends up going home and uh you know sulking and while he's amidst his sulking he comes to realize oh this guy was in a backhanded way in a roundabout way asking me something without asking me something but i really wasn't sure what he was asking him was the thing you know 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I again, I just had to I I I racked my brains about it for a little while and then the only thing that made sense to me was I guess he he just wanted to know that he was capable of you know producing a hit as big as Yamato was but I guess it didn't make sense to me why he wouldn't just outright ask him that you know yeah that's a good question I don't remember I would I feel like I would need to flip through the comic to really recognize oh wait 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 here here so here's the scene I, I found it I was looking for it so okay so the scene is Tomino has just exited the the meeting with uh the president of the other studio and you know he's he's been kind of asked uh, sulking and he goes and then he he has this like eureka moment and he decides to call the the president back and he goes i get it now so that's how it is you're a sneaky one mr president he hangs up the phone and he goes it's me tomino patch me through to the president and he goes why why if it isn't mr tomino how can i assist you he goes i want you to send us one of your movie pr guys bonus points if they were involved with yamato and the president goes, oh, planning something big? And Tom, Tomino replies, let's review Yamato's path to success. Both Yamato and Gundam are sci-fi anime. Both got canned early, both, but had comebacks, thanks to fan support. Their stories are different, but from a business standpoint, they're twins. When you asked us to make a Yamato, you were asking us to create the same kind of boom as Yamato. Ain't that right? And in the scene... He's like slamming the table. It's like something out of like Phoenix Wright where he's like, <laughs> I gotcha, you know? <laughs> Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and, and that's what he's he's shouting to the president of the company. And then um, he goes, ho, 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 well done. A brilliant deduction. Prove the anime business of yours is serious. Clear that hurdle and we'll pay for your manga movie. And yeah, and that's... That's their exchange, but I was like, I was kind of lost. I was like, was that really that brilliant of a deduction? Like, was that even <laughs> something that needed to be deduced? Like, he wants you to like make a movie that's gonna be a success. Like, what's what was there to figure out? <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. I have was an really confused that. by that scene. <laughs> that could just have been a joke that fell flat. Okay, okay. As far as no, yeah, I don't, no, because the I thing don't is. Know. I felt like it was supposed to be this really dramatic moment, this this moment where he's like, gotcha, you know, I, I figured out your scheme or your plan or whatever, but because I wasn't abundantly clear on what the actual scheme or plan was, it just became, yeah, it was just lost on me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, good to know. Yeah. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about in that chapter or you want to move on to the next episodes? We can move on. All right. So episodes 14 through 15. In the summer of 1980, the cultural phenomenon that is Gundam becomes too big to ignore, as all kinds of publications just keep attention on the show. Okayama decides to move forward with Tomino on the one movie, despite Tomino's intention to make it a trilogy. And on top of that, Tomino gets the news that the movie will only be showing in 30 theaters. It seems as though Gundam is being set up for failure, Tomino has other plans as he requests the use of a restaurant attached to the studio. The news is the news is put out that there will be a movie and it will be in 150 theaters. Uh, fans from all walks of life go wild. 
the news has forced the stu has forced the studio into a corner and they will have to commit to showing it in 150 theaters with the annou announcement of the movie the press is going nuts in an attempt to get in on the ground floor we see from their demeanor that they don't that they don't know a thing about Gundam. yes Yaz, Tomino, and Okayama hold a joint conference, and in spite of a seemingly unified front, Okayama and Tomino are going at it with one, with one another. Okayama doesn't want any more leaks or talks of sequels. Tomino thinks otherwise. When he gets the chance to speak, he opts to say hardly a word, leaving Yaz to play public relations. The press conference ends, but the, but the uh, press are still lost. Komaki of Animac steps up, steps into the void to explain everything about Gundam to them. That's the end of chapters 14 and 15. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the story ends up taking a pretty significant chunk of time to build up to the release of the movie and the, I guess, the behind-the-scenes machinations. I don't actually know how accurate all of the stuff depicted that you described is but well, at least within the context of the comic itself it's pretty entertaining it's yeah. the kind of thing that uh again just dealing with the politics and the uh it's how the you call it yeah the it. gamesmanship and yeah the, playing real life chess or whatever you want to describe it as yeah. it's that's uh always a pretty entertaining way to tell a story yeah, I really feel like a lot of the times in in this, or at least based on how the manga tells the story, Yaz's plans a lot of the times really revolve around just going straight to the public. This yeah, idea Tomino's that, plans. Oh, Tomino, yeah, sorry. Tomino's plan revolves around going straight to the public. It's this really, I guess it's in the revolutionary spirit that he's talking about because he's, he's always talking about Gundam in terms of this anime that will revolutionize the industry. Like there will be uh, anime before Gundam and then there will be anime after Gundam. It's that sort of thing, right? Exactly, exactly. And it, it fits that, it, it suits that mood that how Tomino gets around a lot of these studios who are so uh, uh, strict about what they're allowing to do and not do, um, it it makes total sense that he would subvert. Uh, I think yeah, subvert them by by just going straight to the straight to the fans and and getting them to you know make a huge hubbub about it to the point where the studios themselves aren't capable of doing anything about it it really reminds <laughs> me of it, it it reminds me of an, a more innocent time because it's these kinds of techniques that we see now with a lot of movies and stuff like it, it it's cuz of stuff like that that we got something like the Snyderverse <laughs> or right. or the Justice League by by Zack Snyder and i think when we think about it in terms of Gundam, it, it's 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 a situation where the first time that it happens, it's organic, or well, no, it's not really organic because Tomino sets it up. But the first time we see it, it's 
this resounding success, right? Because Tomino was able to use this technique to make Gundam happen. And because Gundam is just such a big deal, you know, it's a happy ending to, to his story. But mm-hmm. in the years since, we've seen this technique co-opted several times, um, you know, to varying degrees, but it's it's become a situation where the fandoms feel like they can harass people to to get what they want and uh it's 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 interesting to look at that story from from that prism you know uh yeah yeah obviously harassing people isn't the way to go about doing things but the thing about tomino being able to kind of win his fans over and i guess in a way organ not exactly organized but I think organize is a good word. Okay, yeah, organize his fans to like create a movement. That I think that does show uh, some savviness in terms of how he's able to connect with fans and yeah, uh, you know, I don't want to say well, I guess I would say yeah, how do you how he used the fans, but not in a callous way. It's more just like kind of. He understood what their energy was and he mm-hmm. understood the value of their of their voice. Yes. And he was willing to use it. And again, like that makes it sound malicious or, or manipulative. Aiming, but it was it was more just like intelligent, I I would say, or savvy. Yeah. Savvy. Savvy is a good word. Yeah. 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 And I th- I think that is something that probably still comes across in how he is in you know in modern times too because like i was saying earlier just some of the things that he says in in interviews i think he knows that they're going to get attention but yeah i'm pretty sure that's why he says it like that you know yeah i mean but the funny thing is we've got people like that who are a dime a dozen now and they they aren't doing it for nearly anything as noble as what he does it for yeah um and and i do think from a historical perspective as as i was reading this that 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 was a pretty interesting way to view this because it it almost feels like because this was something that took place in the late 80s this was a really like early period of time for this kind of fandom to to take place so that again i don't really have any other way to describe it except but that manipulation or that use of their platform and the power of the the community to to um boost the signal of of whatever message that you're trying to get across it just feels more like like most things when they first happen it's all we see are the good things about it the good things that came from it which was oh gundam came from it and you know this was the one instance where the little guy won or whatever right yeah but we're completely unaware of the fact that you know these 
these things can be used. And living in 2023, we we've absolutely seen what that looks like now. Uh, now that everyone believes that they're some sort of thought leader or some sort of movement maker, and you know, yeah, uh, essentially applying the same kind of techniques uh, to try to get their uh, their work uh, completed. And 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 in those cases. I'd even go so far as to say they're they're probably not doing it for anything nearly as noble as um, you know artistic merit as much as they are doing it just to line their own pockets. Mm-hmm. You know, there Agreed. are certain creators out there, certain you know, uh, yeah, certain artists that I don't respect at all, and I I could definitely see them as the kind of people that try to apply the same techniques, but they're just cowards yeah yeah you see it all the time with these people these figures who are trying to cultivate this personality this cult of personality around themselves where it's not even so much about the merit of their own love of the work anymore yeah it's not about the merit of their own work it's more about just like i'm the only one who's brave enough to take a stand for all of you guys who feel like the mainstream has been neglecting you or has been trying to indoctrinate you with stuff that you don't want to hear if you, exactly. you know if you back me follow me we'll create our own yeah industry of whatever yeah. it is you want you know and that's the kind of thing i don't really need in my life. That, yeah and it doesn't matter that the guy doesn't <laughs> the person doesn't you know deliver on this as long as they you know say the right things that incite the right level of anger so that people feel like they're part of this collective this movement it's 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 definitely the the negative end or or the negative spectrum of that kind of movement yeah yeah but it's it is interesting to think of it as a an evolution of it yeah uh, that's what i was gonna say yeah, so certainly in the late 70s, early 80s, before the advent of social media and stuff. Yeah, there was yeah. it was it would have been tougher to. I guess I, well, maybe this is just my fanciful thinking, looking back at the past with rose colored glasses or something. But I feel like back in those days, it would have been tougher to to organize uh, a campaign that would have been like malicious or or harmful like this is more along the lines of writing a letter to your tv station telling them that you want to keep this show on the air or something like that you know like it's not yeah yeah it's not like uh everybody here's the address of the executive now go camp outside until he gives us what he wants or something like that yeah yeah well but the thing is you know social media just made that worse because if if there was someone who wanted to co-opt a movement back in the day, they they probably would have had to produce their own alternative uh, publication, right? True, true, and yeah. They would have had to draw attention to it. They would have had to go out there and basically said, "Oh, these these platforms bleeding bleeding cool news or uh, you know the beat or whatever, you know they're they're all par- they're all in on it. They just want you to keep doing what uh, you know what." 
the powers that be want you to do and i'm i'm here to tell you the real truth or whatever right <laughs> um <laughs> but i but that's essentially their argument a lot of the times is that oh these these forms of media are so corrupt and uh failed that they don't have the ability to tell you the real truth you should only come to me to tell you the real truth and ha had this been like had this been the 1980s it would have been a lot harder for those publications to get any attention but now with algorithms and um social media uh you know all that stuff is floating around and it's it's all a matter of saying or doing the right thing to get attention and then eventually next thing you know bam followers and and you know you can just go and build a brand based off that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was going to say, it reminds me of, um, you know, to go back to, to the Snyder cut as an example, I, I'd have to look into this. So my, my information on it is spotty. So if my details aren't 100% accurate, you know, forgive me. But um, I do remember hearing something where they were talking about how I think it was revealed that a lot of the accounts that were tweeting at Warner Brothers, or mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. want to say Warner Brothers, about um, about you know releasing the, release Snyder, the cut. Snyder cut, a lot of them were like fake. They were all bots, or a bunch of them were bots. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and a I I don't know if this is just a conspiracy or if people were were yeah just just uh making conjecture but they were they were saying that there might be some truth to the fact that Zack Snyder himself might have paid for some of those Twitter bots just so he could get yeah. the studio to help him make the movie. Yeah, I believe I uh if I'm read a report that right. about that too. And there yeah. there was even a small campaign or a subsection of that campaign where I think uh on Twitter people or bots were going after the guy who directed some other movie for the studio. I think it might've been a Godzilla movie or something. Uh -huh. And it was, uh, I, I forget the exact details, but it was basically a situation where like Zack Snyder, uh, well, I, I guess I have to say allegedly, because I don't think that there's any like hard evidence, but allegedly oh, Zack Snyder, right whatever company it was that he hired to create these bots and post all these things, they, they went after uh, the director of this other movie because I guess that movie got made instead of uh, Justice League or something or yeah. his, his version of it. So yeah, it was just this campaign to like harass the dude. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't even know what the point of that was. Yeah. It, I mean, it, at that point, it was just scorched earth. It was getting attention for the sake of getting attention so that you could, you know, show the studios, this is the commitment of my followers. So, yeah, you know, there we have a movement. And if you would just fund us, you'll see, you will see the returns on your investment. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not all too different from what Tomino was doing uh but one he didn't have again, bots he didn't have bots and bots just made that entire situation substantially worse and you know like my 
Atlas, uh, like my um, Iron Rand comparison, I don't think Tomino was such a sociopath that he was willing to harm people in order to get his uh, his work accomplished. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, exactly. He, he showed a modicum of restraint and self-control and made his movement targeted to the point where he would get what he wanted without just burning the earth to the ground mm-hmm. yeah i mean there's now that i'm talking about it, it it reminds me of a scene towards the end of the book but I'll, we can talk about it when we get there okay i'm looking yeah. forward to that yeah you want to move on to the next episodes sure Episodes 16 through 18. In 1981, Gundam would arrive in movie theaters, and the frenzy for anything Gundam was reaching a boiling point. All kinds of merchandise were flying off the shelf, including the complete works, a series of official Gundam books put out by Sunrise. Model model kits were selling like hotcakes, and there were lines out the door for these goods. While amidst Gundam mania, Tomino worked on another show, Ideon, another high-concept science fiction war story disguised as a kid's show. This, too, would be prematurely canceled, but like Gundam, it would reach a legendary status in its own right. As tickets go on sale, we see that 100,000 advanced tickets have been sold, an astronomical amount. With all this publicity, Okayama has no recourse but to concede. Tomino will get his sequels, but the downside is that all they will have, all the the downside is that they will only have a window of a year to produce all three of their of their films to reach the release dates. But Tomino has a solution. He will take a personal hand in the editing, which is a huge help because he is a deeply skilled editor who has made entire episodes from repurposed footage in the past. Yaz reluctantly agrees to this timetable, but with one condition that fixes be made. Or Yaz's, or Yaz will exit entirely from the project. With that, Gundam enters its final year. Yeah, so the stuff about uh, Ideon is pretty funny because I remember there was a scene where Tomino was trying to sell it to the executive, and he was really making it sound like this lighthearted kids show. I, I forget exactly how he phrased it, but he said something in the in the comic. In the manga, he says something like, yeah, these kids will patrol the neighborhood and keep it safe with their giant robot or something like that. Yeah. I haven't actually seen Ideon. It's something I really want to watch, and I regret not buying the Blu-rays when they were still in print. Now they're crazy expensive. Mm. But mm. I've seen clips of Ideon, and it's pretty grim. Like, just the scenes that I've watched on YouTube, it's it's a lot of death. A lot of destruction. You know that scene at the end of Gundam when Shar fires the bazooka and he gets a headshot and decapitates yeah, yeah. Cecilia? <laughs> you see stuff like that in Ideon, except it happens to kids that look like Kika Cats and Let's. <laughs> so it's like little kids Jeez. getting, getting uh, you know, violently killed. It, it's, man. Yeah, so, t- so yeah. to see that scene where Tomino talks about how it'll be this kid-friendly show, it, that one did make me laugh. There's a there's a brief section in it where they're talking about Idion and what he says is they sold it as this kid's show, but in the end it, it's it's a show it's a science fiction show about a war, but in the end 
both sides destroy each other entirely. That's what, that's what yeah. he says in the, yeah. in the manga, which is like, whoosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really want to watch that one. I will say that when, after hearing its description in the manga, that, that did make me curious about it. I did want to seek it out as well. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's uh, hard to get a hold of now, like you said. Yeah, I, re- I remember seeing it on Sentai Filmworks site at some point a few years ago, but I regret not buying it. Why didn't you convince me to buy it at the time, Albert? <laughs> Past Drew owes you. <laughs> uh, there must be blood. We must pay in blood. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's that's rough, man. Okay, from now on, whenever it's a decision between buying and not buying, it's always buy. (laughs) (laughs) I'll remember that. (laughs) No hesitation. Because think about it, man. How many times have you ever regretted buying something versus how many times have you regretted not buying something? That's true. Even if I did regret buying it, it wasn't like the worst kind of regret where I was like, oh man, I can always get rid of it if I don't want it. Exactly, exactly. Man, you've uh, you've changed my outlook on the subject. You're wise. <laughs> <laughs> you are a wise man. <laughs> uh, well, when you become an expert on regret as I have, you start thinking about these things <laughs> on a deep philosophical level. <laughs> Where's our PhD? <laughs> I, I should have a PhD in, in regret and making mistakes and failure. Exactly. I'm exactly. an expert at those things. I might not be able to tell you how to do your taxes. I might not be able to pass a bar exam, but I can definitely describe to you how to feel bad about your life choices. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know the Pythagorean. Pythagorean. <laughs> Apparently, you don't know how to say it either. (laughs) Oh, man. Was there anything else in the chapter that stood out to you or in this chunk of chapters? Um, Well, I'm looking over my notes again. Not really too much. I mean, this this was a smaller chapter that just confirms the idea that there's this frenzy going on for Gundam and... You know, we're, we're, we're seeing bits and pieces of what the day-to-day reality is, which is, oh, you know, we're selling all these pre-release tickets. We're doing so well. You know, by most standards, we're doing well. But at the same time, there's still a lot at stake because if the movies don't do well, they could very much get the plug pulled on them. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's It's that thing that, again, me and you tend to talk about a lot where... Uh, where until until a certain reality is standing right in front of us, it's not a real thing. So there's there's no real... We should be cautious enough not to get so excited because all we're doing is setting us up for the really devastating failures or, or heart, heartbreak, yeah. rather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the higher your hopes are, yeah. the bigger your disappointment will be. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I do empathize with that for them because even though they're getting all these things, it's never as easy as an outright, okay, we're going to let you do the movie. We're going to get let you have your movies. We're going to put it in as many theaters as you want, and you're going to get as many sequels as you want. Tomino, it, Tomino really has to fight 
for all of it. No easy buckets. Yeah. Yeah. There was there was the danger early on in the beginning that maybe that first movie might have been the only one that they could have done. Yeah. So if that had been the case, it would have been pretty disappointing for all the fans because the story would still have been incomplete. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, it's just the studio, maybe it, as a cost-saving measure, I don't really know why they would just half-heartedly support a project like that but to say well we're only going to put it in 30 theaters and on top of that you're only going to get one movie it's yeah i don't uh, get that it's the sort of thing where is it bush league it's bush league it it almost makes you hate your allies more more than your enemies at times because at least (laughs) with your enemies you know where they stand and you know what to expect from them but when your allies like screw you over like that it's like Come on, man. You're you're supposed to be helping me out here. You're you're supposed to be the one, you know, giving me the means to do this. But all you all you ever tend to do is, you know, these half measures that just put me in a place where I have to really constantly work to prove myself to you, mm-hmm. or or something like that. Mm-hmm. It, it sucks. Yeah, totally. There is also the scene uh, where, for the first time. Yazuhiko, I, I mean, he pushes back in other scenes, but this is maybe the only time where he talks about how he's going to leave the project entirely if he doesn't get these changes. That was that was an interesting little moment. Yeah, from what I recall, I, I do think that was important to Yaz uh, working on the movies. That's why, especially um, the third movie, there's a, a lot more new animation in that movie compared to the first two because I think in the first couple, in the first two movies, there's a couple of new, a couple of scenes with new animation. But for the most part, it's it's just recut footage. But once you get to the the third one, like there's a lot of it that's just new footage. Even so, some of the stuff that they could have reused footage, they ended up reanimating it just to make it look better. Hmm. Mm. And they do do that thing that you mentioned where they cut out a lot of the gimmicky stuff mm-hmm. for the movies because, you know, they no longer need to do it because they're making movies now instead of the the weekly toy the, commercial, the, the regular series. Yeah. And he even says it right here at one point. I was just looking at it uh, here. He goes, Yaz is like, uh, when did you put in the request? And he goes, movies don't need toys. Ain't that right? And it's at that point where yeah they're they're cutting out a bunch of stuff and like you said they're just streamlining it so that it's just a more reasonable viewing experience Mm -hmm. i do think that for a lot of people if you just view those movies there's i think a good amount of viewers still feel kind of lost because of the way that they're edited especially the second movie in particular oh it's understandable i think because they're still they were trying to compress like a a bunch of episodes into 90 minutes or two hours or or however long it was. And that's always an iffy prospect. I don't know. I feel like you'll still, I feel like you personally will still be able to follow it and understand it because you've read the origin manga. So you, you know, the basic framework of the story and you can kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the plot itself, the gaps. you'll, you'll be able yeah. to follow it. I, I think, I think the second movie gets the most, criticism because of the 
the pacing and the rhythm of it it's it's it feels very long and then there are some things here and there that i don't know when you just watch it it'll make you wonder like why they kept this in there or why they got rid of that just the pacing of it for such mm-hmm. a long movie hmm. yeah yeah i'll have to check that out i mean it's it's definitely on my list after having read Gundam, the origin, to eventually go and give all these a, a watch, you know, time willing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. You want to move on to episode 19 to 20? Yeah. I, well, let me add that even as a kid, I watched the movies first before I even watched the TV series. And I was like, oh. I don't know, like 13 or 14 or something. So I was still able to enjoy them, you know. Maybe I was a weird kid who had a, who was willing to devote his attention span to something, even though it was like pretty old. Because you know, even as a kid in the '90s, like looking at that footage compared to like a modern '90s movie, you could tell that the animation was from a different generation. It yeah. wasn't as as uh, flashy as modern anime at the time, and then the fact that the movies were the second movie in particular. I remember that one was a little bit more disjointed. You know, I, I still was able to enjoy it as a kid uh, and follow along, figure it out. Maybe I watched it like a bunch of times because back in those days, if you bought a VHS tape, you were going to get your money's worth out of that tape. Seriously. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> those things weren't cheap. And as a kid who had limited amount of VHS tapes, I was just watching the same ones over and over. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> that's a pretty common experience yeah so i mean i would understand if a modern person tried to watch the movies for the first time and was like this is kind of slow or this the pacing is weird like it's eccentric you know i, I would understand that but i do think that tomino's works in general are pretty odd like they're not they're not usually very conventional and I'm not just talking about the plots, but I'm also talking about the pacing and tone of his work. Because uh, some of his other anime, they, they tend to like move pretty quickly. Um, maybe, yeah, I would make maybe, again make the Grant Morrison comparison because, like, a lot of Grant Morrison comics, sometimes you just have to keep up. You know, like you follow along, you can get the basic gist of the plot from f- reading it once, but there might be a couple things here and there that you might have scratched your head, but it moved so quickly that you didn't have time to really ponder it. So when you mm. rewatch it or reread a Grant Morrison comic uh, and or rewatch a Tomino show or movie, you know, th- that second time around, that third time around, that's when you start to put more pieces together and you start to see the flow of it. And I don't know, maybe some people don't like that, but those are the kind of things that I tend to enjoy more. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to say that it adds to your viewing experience because it it forces you to recontextualize it almost every time you see it. Or, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, so I guess from a cost-benefit analysis, you're you're developing a you're getting your money's worth in terms of what ex what. The amount of effort and work you're putting into uh in analyzing it you know yeah exactly exactly 
All right. Want to move on to episode 19 and 20? Sure. Okay. Episode 19 and 20. In their final year, the studio took on a lot of talented animators to help. One such talent was Ichiro Itano. He would end up animating the sequence where White Base deports Jaburo, a scene which includes having to animate a thousand flamingos flying alongside the ship, an iconic and incredibly labor-intensive scene. Yaz would succumb to stress yet again, giving Itano the opportunity to step up. Itano would take risks with his animation that would bear, bear much fruit, and in some instances, he would even go too far. Uh, he would he would ultimately animate the scene where Lady Cassilia was decapitated by a bazooka. No risk, no reward, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Got to risk it for the biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's the end of that chapter. It really just served to introduce um, Ichiro Itano. He's, I, I imagine that he was, I don't know what his role is in real life, but it, it felt like he was important enough that they they needed to include him even though he shows up late in the game yeah yeah he's a very famous and talented key animator in anime so yeah all the stuff is is generally uh accurate uh as depicted in in this manga probably the thing that he became even more famous for later on was some of his animation in sdf macross another pretty famous uh mecha realistic mecha anime uh that became a a massive franchise but the thing in in macross that he was known for was drawing something called the itano circus that's when you have like a bunch of missiles getting launched through either through the sky or in space and they're all flying oh you know like it looks like a ballet describing yeah, 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 it's like a ballet, and then you'll and have it's like just a, a bunch of streams of uh, smoke, right? Yeah, all or, these, uh, all smoke these trails. trails that that are like yeah. individualized, and then they're chasing something, like they're chasing another plane, and then you see the plane twisting, yeah. and then like the camera just rotates in a crazy way. It's like yeah, that's the kind of breathtaking stuff that he pretty much defined. Uh, he was the one guy who did that. So like the scenes in in the manga where you see him like going the extra mile to animate how a key would bounce if somebody dropped it or uh, th- there's that comedic scene where he goes up close to a demolition of a, of a building. So you can see how the smoke, the, uh, how the smoke yeah. uh, looks yeah. in real life. Like, he wants yeah. to know how smoke moves and he wants to capture it accurately. So he goes up and legitimately just watches up close as, as smoke is billowing. Exactly. Exactly. He's just yeah, a, pretty you know, a madman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just a fastidious amount of detail. So anytime you see him do some key animation on something, you'll most likely recognize when one of those cuts of animation was his work or not, because he just does some crazy stylized, detailed, and fluid work. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that was good to know. Yeah, man. He's a... If... if for people who are really into anime, uh, specifically Sakuga, which is like people who are nerds about really beautiful cuts of animation, like he's definitely one of the stars of that. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you nice. go on YouTube and nice. just look up compilations of his work, 
Like if you just type in Kitano Circus into YouTube, you'll you'll definitely find some pretty fun stuff to look at. Yeah, they mentioned it in the manga, but I I really I wasn't too familiar with it, so it it uh yeah, it, it was something that kind of didn't mean anything to me at the moment. Yeah, yeah. We'll go on YouTube after this yeah. and check it out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. You ready for uh episode 21 to the final? Yeah. It was funny how they drew him looking like Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, right? <laughs> I, <thought laughs> I don't know was... why they I don't know why he drew him like that. Such a random choice. I, that's the thing though. I think if this is going to be a uh, a fictionalized or a dramatized version of yourself, then it might as well be might as well look cool. Yeah, right. It might as well be the version of yourself that you would ideally want if you could imagine yourself however you wanted to imagine yourself, right? True. Because all three of them, Yaz, uh, Itano, and Tomine, they're all pretty cool in their own way, right? Yeah, and Okawara. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so as the movie draws near the studio execs screen the film and decide to give it a signal boost they send over tadahiko nobe a, a veteran of the yamato marketing campaign without any real budget nobe and the team look to what they can do to add more fuel to the fire they come up with the idea to reach out to more kids with a title card featuring haro a cute green little robot in the series nobe sees the anticipation within the fan base as a festival and the more fuel they that they can toss on their excitement will only make them want to see it more when it comes out nobe 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 <laughs> nobe reaches out to <laughs> see i've repeated it so much that it lost meaning to me <laughs> pythagorean theorem <laughs> nobe reaches out to kamaki to see if fans will come out to an event for Gundam if they host it, to which Kamaki says they can get a thousand fans. Nobody decides that they're going to put on a festival in front of Shinjuku Alta, uh, proclaiming the start of, of anime's new century. They are on their way to making history. Nobody informs Tomino and Yaz that they will be signing autographs for fans and the two of them are against it given how much they have to do before the release but nobody convinces them that this festival could be the difference maker holding the festival at Shinjuku is risky it is a major train hub that has up to 700,000 people going through it on a daily basis one wrong move could turn the crowd into an angry mob but the risk is worth the reward. And the team, as the team prepares for the festival, they notice people hanging around and are stunned to realize that they are waiting for the festival an entire night before the event. As the sun rises to start the day, they know great things are ahead. And we see, and we see the masses arrive in their thousands, 2,000 to start, but the number is growing. Fans of all shapes and sizes show up. Cosplayers, at the time, a much smaller group than they are today, came out in force. The team had to ready every, 
had to rally everyone that they could get to control the foot traffic because the crowd superseded their initial expectations of 1,000 fans showing up. Instead, what they saw was 20,000 fans in attendance. As things began to get chaotic, the police were about to cancel the event, making it a disaster, making it end in disaster when a voice booms over the crowd, stopping everyone in their tracks. It is Tomino commanding the fans by letting them know how important this is and that they are all and they, they are all unified in their fandom. And what they choose to do now can either save Gundam or send it to the trash heap of history. The fans hear him and collectively act to stop the madness. We see a retrospective of all the events leading up to the moment before the fans joyously proclaim today as February 22nd, 0001 of the new anime century. The festival comes to an end and the movie is finally released. All their hard work has paid off. It is a resounding success. 30 years later, Tomino, Yaz, and Itamo look on at the life-size Gundam that has been built in tribute to them. To most, it's an impressive feat, but Tomino can't help but to want more. The final scene is of the three of them standing in front of the Gundam, having become legends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that final page is the one time that we see them drawn looking like how they actually look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not, I mean, that tells me that he's aware, like obviously aware of yeah. what they actually look like. So it's not something done out of ignorance or anything like that. What if the entire time he was just drawing them out of his imagination and he never saw a photo of what they actually look like until he got <laughs> to the last page? <laughs> I kind of feel like we'd need to give him some credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> That was some pretty forced uh, ignorance that he committed to. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big event that they were talking about in that scene. Uh, it's something that I've heard you discuss several times in our conversations, just how they threw this festival out there as a means of promoting the show. And as a result, just all these fans show up en masse, en masse to celebrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gundam and and the scene that I was going to talk about earlier was how Tomino you know just as things are at their most chaotic Tomino goes out there and just just through the very command of his own presence gets everyone to fall silent 20,000 people fall silent and pay attention to him and he tells he gives this speech and this is definitely a dramatist I assume this is a dramatized uh, moment but you know he 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 tells them that we're all fans that we're all unified and you know pushing and shoving against each other like if you've been to a con or to any event you'll see that <laughs> you know mouth breathers neck beards are the worst kind of fans yeah they yeah. have zero self-awareness about boundaries and space so to get him to control a crowd in such a way if that was in fact something that did happen uh, I got to give him points, you know. I, I got to say, that's <laughs> good on you. So um, from what I've read about the event, that's actually something that did happen. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I believe that is real. Um, I th- There might even be footage of it on YouTube. Uh, I actually haven't looked up the footage. I've only read articles and looked at pictures. But from what I yeah. 
do remember like I've read multiple stories uh from from these articles where they described the scene and yeah the crowd was getting unruly and there was some fear that people might get trampled or something and yeah. Tomino did make an announcement just saying how you know this is a gathering of anime fans and if you know if something something bad happens it's going to tarnish anime fans moving forward you know the public is going to say oh those anime fans are are out of control and you know or whatever um i don't remember his exact words but he he basically did that thing that you see in the book where uh you know he speaks reason and appeals to their anime fandom as a way to get them to stop being unruly yeah 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 um but that you know that goes back to what i was saying where in this instance where he's got all this power over all these people he 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 has the wherewithal and ability to use it responsibly i'd say compared to you know what we've seen of other people who who just want to use it to you know get Zack Snyder's Justice League made or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like I, I I won't say that this completely speaks to his personality like I don't I don't know the guy but I imagine that you know the advent of social media and uh just the the rabid uh frothing of of the masses um yeah, I, I just imagine that social media just made that sort of behavior worse. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. totally, totally. Yeah. But yeah, I I still give uh, Tomino credit for uh, being able to use that situation. Yeah, being very responsible. It was a pretty massive event. I mean, it. I I guess. It would be fair to say that was a the center of a cultural flashpoint for anime fandom. Just one of those things yeah. where it was basically like anime's Woodstock, you know? It it captured the zeitgeist of the maturation of anime and anime fans. Yeah, yeah. Just a, a really key all... moment in anime history. Yeah. And then there's all that uh all the details they added about cosplayers and how Oddly enough, at that point in time, it was a really small subculture of people. And, you know, if you've listened to our podcast, you know, we're not big fans of of uh, cosplayers. But, <laughs> but you know, for them to go from... I, I, I almost want to say that it's a flashpoint for that, too, right? Yeah, for, I'd for say so. As, as, as a... It's part of the fandom. So, like, know. once... Yeah, once exactly, that, exactly. Once you see that there are all these other people who are into this thing uh who are so into this anime that they're dressing up and creating costumes and stuff it kind of empowers you or makes you feel more comfortable to do the same thing because then you know you're not alone and then eventually you can congregate with like-minded individuals and it it just becomes this uh movement where or or a community of, of people who enjoy that thing they enjoy uh in a very specific way which is dressing up yeah, like idiots. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put that in there at the end. 
dude, what if one day Between the Gutters becomes so big that we have people who cosplay as us? Uh, huh. I just want to see that out of a morbid curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kind of curious what that looks like. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the event was called the Anime New Century Declaration, and I'm just going to throw this little tidbit out there, but I'm pretty sure that's why Neon Genesis Evangelion is named what it is, because Ano is such a big otaku, you know? Hideaki Ano, mm-hmm. the guy who uh, directed and created Evangelion, because the Japanese title, the official Japanese title of Evangelion is Shinseki Evangelion, which translates to New Century Gospel. And I'm pretty sure that's a reference to the new century, the anime New Century Declaration. Mm, Right. There is another detail that I just wanted to mention in the manga, because there's a scene at the event where you have somebody who's cosplaying as Char and someone cosplaying as Lala, and they they give a speech or something uh, on the stage. In the manga, they're just kind of like representative of all fans, but yeah, I do know that in real life, those two people did end up becoming professionals in the industry. Oh, the really? Guy, yeah, the guy who dressed up as Char. He he ended up uh, becoming a a designer uh, in, in anime, and he actually did work with Tomino on various things. He worked with Tomino on a show called Elgaim, and he also was a designer on Zeta Gundam, the sequel to First Gundam. And then the the woman who played Lala, or who dressed up as Lala, her name is Maria Kawamura. She ended up becoming a voice actress who starred in a couple of things that Tomino directed, like Aura Battler Dunbine, and she was also in Zeta Gundam. So, That's wild. Yeah, it's pretty wild to think that true. these hardcore fans ended up becoming, you know, professionals in the industry. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the end of the, the main story in The Men Who Created Gundam, but there were some additional chapters at the end of it. There was... The Untold Tale, which is the story of uh, the story of the creator Hideki 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 Owada, who I think it's goes just Hideki. To, oh, Hideki. <laughs> Hideki. I just Owada. enjoyed hearing you struggle. <laughs> so. It's uh, it's a really short story about Hideki Owada and him approaching Tomine as he wants to make this manga about making about the men who created Gundam happen. So he approaches him at a function and asks him if this is something that uh, Tomine would be okay with him doing. Tomino. Tomino would be okay with him doing. And he proceeds to give him a hearty headbutt, you know, like one of those exaggerated anime headbutts where the dude's just gushing blood out of his nose and he's like yeah. out unconscious, you know, pretty, pretty over the top stuff. And by the end of it, I guess that's an endorsement. I guess that's an okay from him as close as you're going to get, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then, um, 
yeah the the following chapters after that are several short stories uh i believe it's called what was it the legend of gundam or or i forget what those last chapters were called but they were essentially just various short stories that fit in during the time period where they're making the 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 gundam anime and just their various experiences over that time one revolves around him dealing with a science fiction magazine where he wants to talk about the making of no no not the making he wants to do a novelization of gundam and this science fiction magazine i guess this mm -hmm. is a pretty big premier science fiction magazine basically dismisses them outright saying that this this anime that you're working on this gundam is for kids it's something that's made to sell toys we 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 dabble in real science fiction this is essentially their attitude <laughs> domino eventually gets the story made and you know it just sells like crazy but it's just kind of an idea of what sort of things he had to deal with what sort of things obstacles he had to deal with in terms of just how other people viewed him how in other industry industry professionals viewed him and how it affected just his day-to-day -day business dealings mm -hmm. yeah uh there was also this one other story towards the beginning where he gets a call from another studio executive and he tells him about how he's going to make this movie happen it's called triton of the sea i think yeah triton of the that sea. was one of his yeah. first uh works i believe yeah, and it's really a, a, a contentious call because this guy, the way that he's drawn is he's just kind of a sleazy looking young dude who who only, yeah, he's, he's a sleazy looking young dude. And the real point of the call is for him to let him know, I just want you to know that we're turning this work of yours into a movie. We don't want you to work on it, but we just want you to know that we're doing it and we're doing it without you. It's a real disrespectful. I was gonna say it was a dick move, but sure. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what ends up happening is the movie gets made. Uh Tomino goes and he sees that his name is listed in the credits under production. But you know, it's I do think it's an interesting short story because it just talks about the 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 pitfalls of being a creative in in an industry like that right where mm -hmm. you can have your work co-opted from you and taken away from you and what ends up happening to him is he's talking to one of his assist assistants and she's asking do you have anything else that can be made into a movie and he gives this smile and he goes i'm working on it right now it's gundam and the thing is at this point in time in this conversation gundam is about to be canceled and it isn't until two years later that the movies come out but it just goes to show his level of drive and determination to see this thing through this project in this industry where you're constantly he's constantly putting his heart out there on the line doing his best to create these works that he truly believes in only to have them taken away strip mined and you know repurposed by uh corporate entities like in 
seeing that in contrast to what happened with Gundam to see that in Gundam, he finally got things to go the way that he wanted. Maybe it wasn't perfect, but it's probably as close to perfect as he was going to get. Yeah. Yeah. I could yeah. see that. It de- yeah. yeah. It definitely wasn't perfect or it wasn't like if he had could have, if he could have concocted his perfect situation, it wouldn't have ended up like that. But I think it's fair to say that he did the best he could with the situation that he was presented with. Yeah. But I think that's also the reality is that no matter what, I don't think there's ever going to be a real perfect situation. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. You might, and, there's always going to be some kind of obstacle in life that's going to hinder you from executing your vision as perfectly as you want. Exactly. exactly. Especially with something like anime or, or making movies or shows, because those things are so beholden to many factors. Mm-hmm. I guess in a way, comics are probably the most not entirely immune to it but probably the most resistant form uh or the the most the form of art that's most resistant to that kind of stuff because at the end of the day if it's just a person who wants to draw a story he can do that by himself you know and yeah of course it would be hard if you weren't making any money from it but theoretically conceptually speaking a person who's hardworking enough and willing to sacrifice can create a comic book story that is only limited by his own personal talent levels or skill levels. Mm. Yeah. I did yeah. want to mention the Gundam novel since, since you mentioned it in one of the stories in one of the bonus stories, but that's one of the, strangely enough, that's one of the Gundam books that has been translated because there's a lot of Gundam manga that's never been translated like so much of it, like we were lucky to get those 12 volumes of the origin, but uh, for us to actually have Tomino's original novels translated, that's kind of funny to to think that of all the things that they could have picked to translate, somebody decided to do the, uh, the original trilogy based on the first Gundam anime series. I actually own that. I read it a bunch of years ago and I let I let Zach borrow it like maybe eight years ago and he still has it. So I haven't flipped through it in a long time, but, but one of these, you know where they are. Yeah, I know where they are. I know where he sleeps. So I can always uh, hunt him down and grab him if I really, really want them. So the funny thing is about those books though, is that they, they are pretty different from the series. Like they're definitely even more adult oriented and actually um I, it's they have some weird stuff too like some definite weird stuff like i feel like when i hear people talk about those novels one of the first things that always gets brought up is that in the books the soldiers you know how soldiers sometimes in these shows or stories you see them like they have lockets that contain a picture of their loved one or whatever yeah yeah, yeah so like what? In in the Gundam novels, instead of lockets that contain a picture of their loved one that they left behind, they have these lockets that contain a pube from the one they left behind. <laughs> uh, huh. I want to say 
I feel like that in conjunction with what we've seen of Tomino in this book, <laughs> it, it paints a pretty interesting picture of the guy. <laughs> well, he was the guy who was saying how he, he was uh, criticizing Makoto Shinkai's movies for having the, the male and the female leads always reaching out to each other, but the guy never ends up touching her crotch. <laughs> oh man but yeah those those novels are pretty interesting i think if you do have the patience to read prose that's a pretty fun read another it's an alternate take on gundam for sure because even the way the story goes um is pretty different from the the movies or the tv series or yaz's origin manga uh i don't know would you, you do you care about spoilers? You, you want to know some of the no. things that happen? Yeah, go ahead, go for it. Yeah, so like in in the books, Amaro and Sela have a romantic and sexual relationship. That's uh that's kind of it. It kind of feels like fan fiction or something. <laughs> I feel like that's it, the it, kind it of really thing does that... right. Like after we've experienced. Yeah. The, you know quote-unquote real Gundam story to, to hear something like that it it sounds weird <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it, it it's especially seeing it in prose form it really does drive home the fact that it makes it, I can't help but think of fan fiction when I hear uh, an idea like that <laughs> yeah and not only yeah. that but Amuro gets killed oh yeah like early or just no not uh, early Towards the end. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So it it takes some pretty uh big forts in the road compared to the story that we're familiar with. I mean, I guess that's the great thing about all these alternate sort of stories where you can explore those kinds of differences, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I'd rather see uh, Tomino's version of that than, you know, Gundam Fan 229 or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that scene yeah. in the in the Men Who Created Gundam in that bonus chapter where you have that young boy who picks up a copy of the novel and starts flipping through it in the bookstore. And, yeah. and then he sees he reads a passage that describes Sela's naked body or something. And, and, then, and then the kid he's just so shocked by it and uh you know he, he basically pops a boner and hurts himself in the middle of the store <laughs> and collapses to his knees and he's just studying the the prose on the on the page saying this is literature <laughs> like that that was a it, it was a crude joke but i admit that one made me laugh the thing that I think that's interesting about that is in the context of what you just read in that story, it's in the same story where he had just gone to this, you know, prestigious science fiction publisher who, who for all intents and purposes, tells him this is an art, right? We and only publish real literature. Exactly, exactly. And then to have that juxtaposed against the scene of this kid, you know, reading this book. And popping a boner and being like, "This is real literature, right?" <laughs> it's it's an interesting choice because it just kind of reminds you that there is a subjective a subjectivity to to literature, and 
you know, these hoity-toity, uh, you know, academic elites or whatever might be able to, to, to tell themselves that we're, this is real literature or whatever, but at the end of the day, like, people read this stuff, you know? People read these novelizations. Yeah, and the kid in that story, uh, I think they actually mentioned his name. They gave him a name, and he, he did grow up to be a writer. He actually ended oh, up yeah, writing yeah, yeah. some. Yeah, he ended up writing some Gundam novels. Yeah, and, it's and some of his another... Gundam, some of his Gundam novels ended up becoming adapted into anime. Yeah, see, it's just another like indication that these gatekeepers uh, of the culture don't necessarily always know. They don't know, you know, their head from their ass <laughs> a mm-hmm. lot of the times. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. that was the guy who ended up writing Gundam Unicorn, which became an OVA series, a really really good one. I would totally recommend watching that one. That's one of my favorite Gundams. Yeah, Gundam Unicorn. Actually, talking about that just kind of reminded me of one other thing that I wanted to mention. Um, you know, just seeing all this stuff about fandoms in in the men who created Gundam and just how much of a big part they played in Gundam becoming what it is. It's obvious that, you know, the that Gundam wouldn't be what it is without the fandom, right? But mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. feel like reading this manga really did feel like I was immersing myself in a time machine where I got to see a simpler time where, um, you know, where fandoms were nowhere near as toxic as they are now because it really feels like nowadays fandoms are just a stand-in for like culture war topics you know yeah and and again being in 2023 and seeing where you are now and how it's evolved like there's just so much gatekeeping involved people telling the other people you're not a real fan because you don't know this or that you don't have any right to dictate what we should see in in you know in our comics because you know you you're new to this you're just you're just here because you like getting attention from people, from from guys or something, or whatever stupid reason that they have for it, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe even something like, well, we've been fans since forever, so, you know, we're the true fans, and they should be writing stories for us as opposed to, you know, new people who might want to experience comics or Gundam too. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's, I That was just a thought that struck me as I was reading it, because again you're just watching you're watching this all play out and it's kind of a golden age of this right because Tomino goes out there and he talks to the fans and he says he gives this speech about we're all unified in our fandom and what you do now like will affect how Gundam is perceived moving forward right that's that's yeah. a heck of a plea to make to 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 these fans and it's it's not a selfish plea either. It's not one that's based around, oh, um, this is the way that you enjoyed it, so this is how it's going to be forever. It's it's really appealing to their the better angels of their nature, I guess, if you're really gonna say call it something. So yeah, I, I just thought that was a really interesting mm-hmm contrast you know 
Yeah, for sure. Living in 2023 and seeing how it is now. Yeah, definitely. It seems yeah. like the past comes across as a more wholesome time period. Yeah, right? Where we can be hopeful about the things that we enjoy and we can be more united in it. And it's really not about, you know, ownership or entitlement or it's, it's not about any of those things. Yeah. It's, I'm sure there yeah. were fans of that ilk even back then. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But at the very least, that's not what this story is about. Yeah, absolutely. I think I have enough of a lack of faith in humanity to believe that there are awful people in every era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if they were purposely trying to make some sort of commentary on that or if they're even aware of that sort of stuff. Like, I don't know what Japanese fandoms are like in comparison to American fandoms, but yeah, it's... uh. Yeah, that's definitely eye-opening. Yeah, there's got to be some cultural differences, I would imagine. I don't, I wouldn't expect the Japanese fandom to be exactly like the American fandom, but I also don't know enough about Japanese fandom in general and their pop culture. I don't know if they're if they have any. Has there ever been like a Japanese equivalent to something like the Snyder Cut thing or anything yeah. like that? Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm totally ignorant of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One more thing that I also did want to bring up about uh, the men who created Gundam. Maybe should have brought this up earlier, but uh, for whatever reason, I guess uh, just kind of the conversation didn't flow that way. But I wanted to bring up how the book i th- i guess in some ways I, I feel like it kind of fails to properly have female representation like there's the one character that uh he made up for the story and i think in the liner notes or in the in the back of the book it's stated that she's she's a an amalgamation of like five of the female workers at sunrise at the time but it, like I guess when I saw that it, it kind of made it feel like it minimized these women's contributions or whatever um that they might have been involved in in the actual making of the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, and 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 the, the way that the I guess just how in reality there are women who worked at the company and it's not really depicted in this story. I mean, on some level, I I kind of understand it because the story tends to follow Tomino, and to a lesser degree, we see Yaz, Okawara, and Itano. But it's so it's it's not really about all these other people. Maybe I'm just kind of complaining at what the book didn't give us, as opposed to like dissecting what the book did give us. But I I yeah, do think yeah. that as a as a story about the creation of Gundam like it it really is the men <laughs> who created Gundam you know like it makes it feel like <laughs> right, it's right. just these men but but you know obviously even in the in the what do you call it the material at the end of the book you know it mentions that there were women who worked at Sunrise and they were just compiled into this one fictional character um mm. that Tomino is always you know grabbing or being really handsy with making lewd comments yeah. and it, it it's i don't know it, it just feels weird to me 
it's a bad look to have all those things working in uh in in unison with one another exactly exactly um, yeah especially yeah, when that's I, like the only female character or maybe yeah. like one of the only female characters the only other one who comes to mind is i think it's in the one of the bonus chapters when when there's a the introduction of a, a pop idol yeah you remember that yeah, yeah so like yeah for some reason and the thing is the storyline is about him trying to grope her <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so yeah. so that is based on a real person uh that's in the book i think they actually changed her name by one letter but it's supposed to be hiroko moriguchi who's this uh pop singer who became famous because of singing gundam songs like she sang the second opening theme to uh zeta gundam and mm. i think she was a if I remember the story correctly, she was a teenager at the time and it became a hit song for her. And she was a girl who grew up like always wanting to become uh, a pop idol or a singer. But then uh, after that Gundam song hit, uh, it was tough for her to like find more success after that apart from Gundam. And then like, I, I believe she kind of like, you know, struggled she like a like lot a... of like a variety of show star or something like that. Yeah, yeah. She she struggled for a bit and then ended up becoming this uh, variety show host and, you know, just continued to work and whatever she could do to, to just work in that area. Yeah, yeah. You know, like she, she did that. And then uh, in the early 90s, there was another Gundam movie called F91. And she ended up singing the song, the ending theme song to, to that movie which ended up becoming another big hit so like eventually uh I, I think that helped her get back in the public eye and then with all her tv stuff like she ended up becoming a bigger star yeah um, yeah but she still has this connection with gundam uh like she's she's been associated with gundam like ever since because she uh like it's like the foundation for her popularity i guess and she's recorded yeah. a bunch of Gundam themed albums where she'll do these covers of all these other Gundam songs that you know she didn't originally sing but they were just theme songs to other Gundam shows over the years over the decades hmm. she even did the ending theme song to Kukuru's Doan's Island which we saw in theaters last year hmm. so she's still you know actively involved but the yeah. yeah I mean like the book just treats her as like this object that Tomino's trying to grab which is pretty weird <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's I I get what you're saying. Like we've seen comments like this regarding other works where it's not really where I'd say that it's not really the point. Um, you know, works where people try to inject the fact that oh, the this you know, this makes it feel like it's a a boys club and blah 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 and you know, and the idea almost seems like I forget what 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 comic we were reading review for, but that that was, was it what a they were zoo saying. Zoo in winter. I think it was. It was a zoo in winter, and that wasn't something that was, at least as far as I can tell, I I didn't take it as, you yeah. know, sexist in any way. It was just something that was a straightforward uh, depiction of what his life was like. And in that right. case, it didn't make sense to look at it and say, well, why weren't there any women there, right? 
So right. like, I don't think that that's always the case, but I do agree that in this particular instance, in the men who created Gundam, that is, it's a trouble. It's a troubling element of the work, especially taking into consideration, like you said, uh, the depiction of Tomino as, you know, just this lech, right? Uh, on the one hand, maybe mm-hmm. it's it's a joke, but on the other hand, like there is something kind of troubling about it because it's it's pretty dismissive at worst or at yeah. best. Yeah, very yeah. dismissive, and that that's the kind of humor that I don't think holds up. I don't know. I don't yeah. even know if that would hold up like 12 years ago when this came out in Japan. Or maybe yeah. it's just the cultural difference. I don't know. Yeah. I was going to also say in regard to that one story about the pop idol that you were talking about, and I don't, I'm not trying to defend it. I'm not trying to say that it makes it better, but one element of it that was mentioned or, or that I feel is worth mentioning is the exchange that he has with the girl is essentially that she's saying that, Oh, from what I remember, what's going on was that she's, she feels like she's at the end of her career but because she sticks to it and decides to do it her way, she eventually finds a way into doing variety shows and becomes this massive uh, variety show, um, not character, Post. but personality. Yeah, personality. This, this, yeah. this variety show personality, and she becomes a success in her own right. And I feel like it's almost their way of saying, like, you know, in life, you're not always going to get to do things the way that you want to do, but if you're persistent and if you keep doing things and keep working at it, like eventually it'll pan out somehow, some way. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. unfortunate that the the framing device for the story is about how these two met because he was trying to grab her butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds like a joke when you say it like that, but that's, how it is it's, it's what it was yeah <laughs> that's exactly. how they knew each other uh yeah yeah it's it's uh, yeah i don't Do have a have... defense for it <laughs> yeah i don't think i don't think there's a re- real way to defend that yeah maybe the, the only way that you could defend it is just by saying it's a joke but even then like it's flimsy and it's yeah i, I personally yeah. didn't think it was very funny and it's not in the best taste. Yeah. Yeah. What were you going to say? I was going to ask if you did have any favorite jokes in the manga. If there was anything that, you, that you'll remember for being amusing or funny. Huh. I don't think I was really enamored with any of the humor. I think I was just more... When you asked at, at the start of the show like about how you were curious as to what my take on it was going to be seeing as how I didn't really have any real connection with Gundam. I was going to say that I think the way that I view this story is through the prism of this man with a vision who's, you know, a plucky underdog trying to, to make his dream come true, you know? And I think for me, that was enough uh just watching their struggle and their camaraderie uh this the camaraderie of this group of people as they try to achieve something achieve 
this work of art um this work of fiction rather mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so i think that's that's my entryway into appreciating this comic I, I i can't say that it necessarily works for me as a comedy that it really does anything for me but uh yeah i i guess my appreciation from it would have to stem from from uh that that underdog story that's fair that's fair yeah. i get that yeah you have any final thoughts well I'm going to try this again. I'm going to see if we can make it stick. So you did buy it. So we know you bought it. All right. But let's say you, you, you've just read it now. All right. And you're going to make the decision. You haven't bought it yet. Let's say you haven't bought it yet. Okay. <laughs> what would you do? Is this something that knowing now, what knowing then what you know now, would you buy this? Or no, would you leave this on the shelf? Would you borrow it from the library? Would you buy a discount copy? Or would you buy your own copy at retail price? Well, buying a copy at retail price is a very rare thing, regardless of how good the comic is or how much I like it, because I'm constantly searching out deals and sales. That's a good qualifier, but I'd also like to think that if you loved something enough, you would not hesitate to pay full price for it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. If that's what it means on the rating scale, then I okay, yeah, I can get behind that. I think I would probably say this is a book that I would have borrowed from the library if I could have read it that way. I mean, obviously, I bought the copy so that both of us could read it and I don't regret buying it. The library didn't have it and it's not a digital comic or it's not available digitally. So it was something I wanted to read, and the only way I could read it was by buying a copy of it. So I, I, I do have to qualify my rating <laughs> by saying that I don't regret buying this book, and I'm not gonna, yes, I'm not gonna like get rid of it or anything. I'm gonna hang on to it because I, I probably will flip through it or reread it at some point. Yeah, uh, but it's again, it, it is one of those books where, if if I had had access to it before buying it i probably would have just wanted to read it first to um to decide whether i would have bought it in the first place but because that wasn't an option all i could do was buy it (laughs) (laughs) you really didn't want to be reductive about your answer (laughs) i'm ready to testify in a court of law If you ever get in trouble, Albert, you would want me to be one of your witnesses because I will not screw up. Your Honor, it all depends on what the meaning, what the definition of the meaning of the word is, is. (laughs) Heck yeah, man. Learn it from Bill Clinton, man. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, I guess if I had to put it on a scale... um, Man, you you giving me all those qualifiers. It's it's making me think, man. I guess okay. My current situation with comics being what it is, I'd have to say that this is something that I'd probably read from a library and I think I'm content to read it from a library or, you know, the borrowed copy that you gave me. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. but I will also say that 
know what? Given the right conditions, uh, the kind of day I'm having, and uh, if, if I found it in a discount bin somewhere, I'm not against buying it at a discount bin. Let's say, let me give you a, a fictional scenario, completely <clears throat> hypothetical. But let's say you came across it at the Green Apple, and it was just, I don't know, let's say three bucks, and it was a pristine, basically Ooh. like new copy, three bucks. And you just had a really busy week at work. Your manager treated you like crap and, and disrespected you in front of everybody. <laughs> and and okay. the girl okay. that you were in love with said she wasn't interested in you that day. Oof. Well, I'd, I'd probably buy the entire discount bin at that point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what have you got? I don't care. <laughs> Now I got another question. Have you ever bought a knowingly bad comic just because you felt like buying a comic? <laughs> yeah, I've definitely done that. Yeah, I've done that too, if I had to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, I remember that time you bought Identity Crisis. And that's what I was going to say. I bought Identity Crisis. I think, uh, uh, didn't you buy Planet Hulk? <laughs> no, I didn't end up buying it. Okay, okay. That was one where I was holding it in my hands and I was like, I just want to buy a comic and this trade is pretty cheap. It was like eight bucks for the deluxe hardcover, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, and that's like Should I just buy this because it's a deal? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think you but... talked me out of it. <laughs> Should I not have? <laughs> well, that's one thing that I do not regret not buying. <laughs> I'll tell you this much. Um, even without all that stuff happening, if if I did find it at the discount bin for three bucks, that'd be very tempting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think at that point it'd be a flip of a coin. Just just what I'm feeling in that exact moment. So it would have nothing to do with how you were treated at work or being rejected by a woman. I think so. I think so. Like I think instinctively, if we're going by the metric of of this conversation. Uh, if we're using this as a metric to tell people whether we recommend them reading it or not, I'd probably have to stick with, uh, you know, if you can read it from the library, read it from the library. But realistically speaking, if if, uh, if I did see it in a discount bin, yeah, there's a 50-50 chance I buy it. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. 50-50 ain't nothing. It ain't, man. Yeah. It's more... It's better odds than that girl gave me that rejected me on that day that you yeah, exactly. did your hypothetical scenario. <laughs> well said, man. Well said. <laughs> oh, man. No, I've, I've definitely bought comics at Green Apple just because I felt sad that a girl I was interested in wasn't interested in me. <laughs> oh, Drew. Uh, hey, we've all been there, man. We've all been there. Welcome <laughs> to the life. Welcome to the life, man. All right. If there's nothing else, I guess I'll say that if uh, you have any questions about what we read Wait, what today, about what about your recommendations, dude? Oh yeah, shoot. I almost got the gun on that. All right. Um, I couldn't really think of anything. Uh, I did mention Fountainhead and Ayn Rand earlier, but <laughs> honestly, I didn't really want to recommend it because I'm just not a fan of Ayn Rand as a person. <laughs> I. Right, right. And I'm being honest about this, so you know, like 
I'm being transparent here, so let that be worth something. I might, I'm, I, I still might read her work someday just to educate myself, but I find it hard to imagine that uh, it's something that's going to speak to me in any way. I, I, I tend to feel like the kind of people who really do enjoy it are, are the kind of people that I generally don't get along with anyways. So anyways. <laughs> I'm that or Steve Ditko. Uh, okay. Well, he's Steve Ditko, so he gets a pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was going to say the one thing that did occur to me as a recommendation would, and, and this is something that's a little hard for me to recommend because it's just so many volumes and I haven't read all of it, but I will say American Splendor by Harvey P. Carr does strike me as something that's spiritually, um, similar to this in that a lot of it it, it it covers a lot of different subjects but American Splendor does in, uh, in large part seem to be about his life and um, there are stories about him trying to make his art happen so I do think that is applicable. There was also the one book that was about the American Splendor movie it was called Our Movie Year that one was yeah about, yeah I remember that one yeah 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 that was like a a bunch of short autobiographical stories about him and his wife when I forget the name of the director of that movie but when the people were making that movie and all the things that he experienced throughout that situation uh-huh, uh-huh. it's been a while since I read it so I, I don't remember a lot of the specifics but I am I mean, a, in general I'm, Harvey Picard is terrific. Yeah, so. yeah, I'm a, I'm an American Splendor fan for sure. So I, I have like a bunch of those comics, and I do pull them off the shelf every once in a while just to reread a random short story. Mm-hmm. You got any recommendations? My recommendation is another manga. It's called Insufficient Direction by Moyoko Ano. So I mentioned Hideaki Ano earlier in conjunction with Evangelion, which is one of my favorites. Moyoko Ano is actually his wife, and Insufficient Direction is a manga she made about their relationship. And it's another, it's a comedy series, or it's one volume. Uh, it's, it's a comedy uh, series about uh, their married life and how... Uh, Basically, Hideaki Anno is just one fat nerd <laughs> who has these, <laughs> he has these really specific interests and things that he likes a lot to an obsessive level. And it's just a bunch of short stories about how she sees him interacting with his own hobbies and interests and how they interact with each other. Um, it's pretty wholesome stuff. It It's definitely more... Well, I wasn't. I guess I wasn't planning to make this comparison when I brought it up, but since I started, yeah, I would. I would just say it's a much better comic than the men who created Gundam. Like the the cartooning is definitely different from uh, Hideki Owada's kind of hard-edged and flashy drawing style. Like Moyoko Ano's drawing is more on the. I don't know softer side doesn't look like she's trying to emulate any kind of shonen 
style or anything. It's more just, it looks more like what you would see in an American indie comic, you know, like more mm-hmm. cartoonish characters. And it's just a little funnier looking like Hideaki Anno is just drawn as like this, I don't know, like a pot bellied dad version of himself. <laughs> He's always right. got messy hair. His shirts don't fit properly. She draws herself as a literal giant baby. <laughs> so it's just an amusing piece of work, man. You get a peek into their daily life, but also like the comedic elements of their interactions and relationship with each other. It's cute. Yeah, I remember you talking about that. It sounds it sounds entertaining, man. Yeah, I mean, I think once you read that and you get some insight into their marriage, it'll help you see or understand, or it'll add some additional context when you watch... Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 thrice upon a time because after you watch that movie you'll be like okay I can understand now why this movie is one big I love my wife love letter you know (laughs) I like that I mean Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means because I haven't seen it so I don't know what it has to do with his wife but that sounds interesting now yeah I mean I was always interested in it but you gotta watch it yeah all right any other recommendations that's all I got. All right. Well, if anyone has anything that they want to say to us, they have any questions or uh, if they have any recommendations of our own, of their own, you know, feel free to hit us up on between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to DM us on our Instagram at between the gutters. You can tweet at us too. Uh, you know, by all means uh, hit us up and, Whatever platform you happen to be listening to us on, if you could give us a high rating, that would go a long way to helping us achieve greatness. So thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Next week, we are continuing our read-through of Deadly Class. We will be covering volume two of the trade paperbacks. Peace out. Bye, guys.